People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Greenwash. This is Jaspreet. I'm here with Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week. And it almost seems the week has gone too first and there's been a lot of very sobering news, hasn't it, Don? Lots of sobering news this week, uh, Jasper, and hello, listeners. Uh, yep, we're farmers and we know the pain that's around. And uh, Jasper, you've got um, a better handle on it than me in the dairy industry, but uh, even in the sheep meat industry, nothing's right. And what I've noted, I know it's not a nice way to start the program, but the despondency uh, in the area that I live in is palpable. Mm. And, you know, they sort of seem to think that a change of government will perhaps help that, but it doesn't change international prices. It just doesn't. Nah, and we do call this the reality check radio for a reason, John, and mm. that that is the reality out there. Now, the dairy sector, I mean, we're not special, but at this point, the milk price is back at 2018 levels, so five years back. But all my input prices... All of them have gone up by over 200%. Hmm. So maybe, maybe a quarter of the dairy farmers might make some profit this time. Debt servicing is going to be a big factor because it's along with the other input costs post-COVID. There is also the banks extracting their pound of flesh. So an interesting year all around ahead of us, interesting season. And the pain is going to be felt across New Zealand, not just provincial and rural New Zealand, right across the country. Yeah, generally it's rural at, uh, in regions that it happens to first and then it uh, hits the metropolitan areas later. But, uh, you know, with the amount of uh, gaming that's going on in politics at the moment, you know, there's a saying when we were kids, and I, this sounds a bit crass, but when I when we were kids and we we're young boys and the 
in the toilet at school in the ur- urinal, as they used to call it, and you're peeing against the wall, and you always used to see who could pee higher than your, your mate next door. <laughs> That's what it's like in New Zealand politics at the moment. It's seeing who can pee higher than the other one at your expense. And the nonsense around um, where we need to have a higher fuel tax now to uh, to fix the potholes. We've funded the potholes. Uh, you know, what should have fixed the potholes for the last six years? So what, where did all that money go? What happened I, to that? I couldn't believe Damien O'Connor's, that sounds like that came from him. It's rotating around social media. Yeah. He's saying yeah. we don't get enough tax. Oh. Really? Uh, really, we don't take enough tax. Uh, it, you know, and, and of course, we, we talk about the fuel taxes. Uh, uh, sure, they they cut us some slack for a period on road user charges and fuel taxes for a bit, but now it's on recovery mode. Um, and on top of that, they want to puddle around with uh, GST on uh, fresh food, fresh and frozen foods. Uh, it all just is a, it's a money go round that they're just playing with. And it makes no sense to someone like me who just would rather that they got out of our way and let, uh, let us get on. But redistribution's their game. And that's what they're doing. And they're doing it by making, in this instance as well, last uh, Friday's press statement about the emissions trading scheme and the need to get farmers' uh, emissions priced from their animal emissions priced and nitrous oxide emissions priced. Um, It was just vintage politicking by the left to get, uh, in my opinion, uh, urban New Zealand to... Um, sort of have some negative disposition again to farming. I feel a rant coming on, Don, but I will <laughs> hold that thought for a moment. I will, um, to change the mood, I'm going to uh, read a couple of the feedbacks we've received. Listeners, we've got a pretty packed show this week. So Don and I, uh, we've got two speakers, both who will be talking about, as I call it, the state of the nation. One actually will be more state of the world per se. He's going to cut across uh, much of pretty much uh, all the Western state of affairs because ever since COVID has begun, it seems to me every country seems to be playing by the same, same rules, identical. So we have someone who's done some very thorough research in this. And after that, Jill and I also have a segment today. So we'll be talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number three. Good health and well-being for all. Can't wait for that one. But but for now, the feedback, let us see. Kerry, great show this morning. The eloquence and clarity of expression uh, is warmly appreciated. Thank you so mm. much, Kerry. The one above it, and I haven't got a name for it, sorry, is just like local government New Zealand with three waters, the farming groups are government shills. They're the ones helping the government to implement these unpopular reforms. Well, one of our guests will talk about that, won't Mm -hmm. won't she? Yeah, yeah, she will talk about how we don't just provide a news for our next, we pay for it handsomely too. Mm. Then this one is again from a cell phone number. And for uh, as a reminder, our cell phone number is 2057. If you're listening in, send us a text. This one says, and this is probably listening to the structural engineer, John Scarry, whom we've had twice now. He says, as a fellow mechanical engineer, I'm so appalled by all of this from a professional body and our new rulers, the MB, 
Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, who do the exact opposite of all of that, that I'm seriously considering resigning in disgust. Simple proof that AWG is uh, rubbish is that the molecular mass of CO2 is 44, air is 29. Plants can't go without CO2. Yep, we, we know all of this. I am so glad you're listening in. And if you do, if you do resign from the professional body, do text us and let us know, and we'd love to have you on. Yeah, sure. And of course, we've got one from Ian McIntosh too, which was a very good overview about um, climate and CO2 and uh, all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, we hope to get uh, to make contact with Ian in the next day or two. Yes, and hopefully have him on soon as a guest, Professor mm. Ian McIntosh. Uh, what has sort of become almost a theme song for Jill and my United Nations segment? We've had someone ask us that what's that song we've been playing on repeat there uh, just before that segment. So that was If I Were the Devil by Colby Eckhoff. The song, I believe, came out uh, in 2021. And I don't know, it seems so apt when uh, we head into the United Nations segment and we start it by playing If I Were the Devil by Colby Eckhart. Look it up. Yeah. But now quite, for the rant. Why that? No, no, I won't rant. I won't rant. In <laughs> fact, in fact, listeners, I have to say, uh, we record this on Zoom and so I can see Jaspreet. And I have to tell you, last week when I um, cut the South Pacific Ministry some slack, um, she was glaring at me as if to say, you cut no one any slack. And so, look, I have to say, I apologize, Jaspreet. I got it wrong. Um, I did uh, cut him too much slack because ACT came out uh, under the ACT banner this week. They came out and said the Ministry for Pacific People spending in one year was on pressy cards was 121000 um, so there's significant waste there. They also, in their press statement, said that that $40,000 on the farewell for its chief executive um, was was accurate, but then they spent 7000 welcoming to the culture and heritage um, uh, position he went to. <laughs> and then on top of all that, that press statement from ACT talks about how in 2016-17, the Ministry for Pacific Peoples had 34 FTEs, but by 21-22, it had grown to 128. And in that year, 2021, they spent over $1,400 per staff member on food. And so then it goes on to talk about how, and yeah, this sounds a bit hard because I think we could do this with any ministry. I just, this one's the one that I'm picking on at the moment. Um, the ministry is unable to point to any achievements other than successfully spending $30.6 million budget. It's $30.6 million budget. Um, it's got no tangible, obvious gains for that spend. And I think we would find that in many, many entities um, in the last few years, uh, the wastefulness. And here we have governments wanting to put up taxes, uh, uh, muddle around with taxes or meddle around with with taxes and pretend that they're holier than thou. Well, actually, um, they need the big um, sort out uh, right there. Uh, the, the ministries that can and the governments that allow this to happen are not the friend of the people. Mm -hmm. They are not. And it's almost like, you know, the ministries, 
then seem to hand over funds to these NGOs that are operating in all these organizations, consultants and whatnot. It's almost comes from one direction out of the other. And us taxpayers are just, we should be renamed the ATMs, you know, keep yeah. just keep coming back to us for more and more. What you just said sounded, and I thank you, Don, for acknowledging I was right. I almost <laughs> forgot that. <laughs> don't expect it too often. <laughs> I hope I don't make make a career out of this. <laughs> oh, no. Nah. Uh, you know my motto, cut them no slack. We've given <laughs> them enough and they have not shaped up. But uh, look at that uh, mental health, the spend on that, $1.9 billion. And when last year, just before Christmas, the figures came out, we haven't increased a single bed. So where do you spend nearly $2 billion? How do you spend $2 billion with nothing tangible to show for it? It is so easy to spend other people's money, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, that's, of course, we keep going on about this, the um, the value proposition. Uh, why is it that people um, think that they can, they expect a standard of living uh, out of other people's efforts and they, they expand it? I mean, none of these people will have taken a pay cut this year, like farmers will. None of them will have taken a pay cut. In mm-hmm. fact, I was in a shop in Invercargill um, yesterday and uh, I made a bit of a muttering about how the last time I bought this product, it was 30 bucks and all of a sudden it was 160. And how could that happen? And the, the lady serving me said, well, I haven't had a wage increase this year, Don. Um, and I said, uh, yeah, I know everything's gone up and everything seems out of whack. Um, but, you know, the expectation is that everybody should have more and more and more. And then we've got on the other side of the ledger, we've got these people talking about degrowth. Um, they want degrowth, but they still want to have their pound of flesh and okay. have their wages. Are they? Do they actually need to expend any effort for degrowth? Don, I thought we are in a recession already, two consecutive quarters of contraction of the economy. So, They've, they've achieved that motto. They can shut up and go home. Well, yeah, I could put them in, as I said, away down on the Antipode they're Islands. Dead. Job uh, done. Job done. Uh, but they actually are, are talking about how it's it's more important that you you don't waste any of the world's resources, and that's fine. It, that, to me, they should be used wisely. Nobody is. You know, there's literally frugal living and other mm. pages mm. right now where people are I mean, I'm literally quoting, chopping off whatever, you know, when you're chopping a veggies, whatever's left over, not throwing it, putting it, making some stock out of it. No one is wasting anything. Literally everyone I know is op shopping, struggling to make ends meet. So whatever this lot want, they've achieved it. Yep. And it's interesting when I read this document on on uh, degrowth, um, there was a there's a, a conference coming up in Wellington on it, by the way. Um, and of course, uh, yeah, we've heard about green growth for years, and and even the green growth agenda doesn't suit the degrowth agenda. Uh, and often, a lot of the people that are port- purported to be behind the um, the degrowth agenda are are sometimes quite affluent people. Yes. How does that work? How arrogant of them! Arrogant affluence. <laughs> <laughs> I, but now it's. I need a couple of minutes because we've got such a packed schedule today to talk about this methane madness and how after 
pushing already farmers are at that stage and the methane issue is going to affect everyone urban new zealand your waste your bin charges in the rural new zealand of course our uh, cattle's burps and belches and all of that and why is that that yesterday the minister came out saying that not yesterday a couple of days back the minister came out saying that uh, nestle is our biggest uh, you know uh, consumer for fonterra products and it wants 50% reduction in emissions and there's nothing else we can do well is there one standard of the science for new zealand and the rest for the rest of the world i i have grown up in the shadow of the first nestle factory in india that was in punjab close to where i come from and i can tell you as i have said in the past there is no animal identification scheme in india it's got the world's largest livestock herd they say who's to say is that right or wrong no one knows how many cattle ruminants are there in india no one knows where they are no one knows how much they produce let alone start accounting for their emissions so is nestle still going to be taking stuff from india presumably yes so if it's all about the science and stopping global warming and saving us all from climate armageddon why why these double standards well and and that's the issue isn't it um as i understand it nowhere in the world uh, are farmers and the gun like that are in new zealand so why is that is it because we're a, we're a small player in the south pacific and we we've sort of got to bow and scrape to get access to markets well uh, we are a large cross border trader of dairy products uh, and meat products but um it it makes no sense to me i mean sure in ireland they're trying to tax uh, or take a few hundred thousand cows out of the um out of circulation circulation uh, uh yeah Uh, and and in the Netherlands they're trying to uh disestablish farms and and make sure no farming takes place on those lands again because that's they they need the land for urban development by the sound of it mm. um so the but New Zealand is the one that seems to be in the gun and you know we've even got as the CEO of um Fonterra Miles Harrell he's the chairman of the um global platform which is part of the global methane pledge that was signed in uh, Chile last year so they're all over the place these outfits and and I have to say and I know it's your hobby horse uh and I'm slowly getting it to be mine as well Jasper <laughs> uh you know that that outfit is deep into the SDGs deep deep uh, uh, hard to believe so none of this makes any sense to me when other farmers around the world farming countries around the world can produce like new zealand subs- production subsidy free then they will have the gold standard like us and then if they still want to be um clever enough to put trade barriers up like taxing for emissions or counting your emissions then new zealand might have to do something but we don't have to do it right now just don't and there is no reason because on top of that the very latest science the stuff that you don't read about in mainstream media 
so shows that methane and nitrous oxide can never be a problem that's worth bothering about. Its warming effect would be points zero of, or yeah, less than point one of a degree per century. Well, nothing to see here. Point zero one. Sorry. We should conclude. What is the obvious one, Don? There's no point looking for a reason in treason. That is what this is. How can you give India a free pass, a country mm. at which is, you know, depending on estimates, it accounts for between 7 to 9% of the world's emissions. They've been going up at the rate of 10% because India is still, still using, firing up more dirty coal plants. So the country that is, that's emissions are nearly 45 times those of New Zealand gets a free pass. And we guys out here are going to pay. I'm telling you, John, it almost seems like time to pack my bags for the motherland. It seems to be saner by the day. <laughs> Please don't <laughs> do that. We need you here. But, you know, I, I was reading today's um, output from the National Party, and they said they need to um, uh, reduce, give farmers the tools to reduce emissions, <laughs> uh, including recognising on-farm sequestration, measuring uh, farm-level emissions by 2025, uh, they'll keep ag out of the emissions trading scheme, but implement fair and uh, sustainable pricing system, blah, blah, by 2050. And then they come on to say an independent board with a power of veto retained by the Minister of Climate Change and Agriculture will be established. I mean, what planet are they on? They have the information that I have, and yet they still want to play in the dirty methane paddock. It it makes me weep for the future of our um, animal agriculture uh, industry. But there we are. That's what we've got. And, you know, our next guest, she's going to talk about it. She's pretty frustrated. Um, South South Waikato farmer, Helen Mandano, going to talk about um, how she feels betrayed um, uh, yeah, betrayed by uh, by the industry bodies. So sit back and we'll hear Helen after the break. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us. Our email address is inbox at the rate reality check dot radio or text us at 2057. You're with Greenwash this morning. Welcome back. You're with Greenwash. I'm Josh Freeth with my co-host Don Nicholson here. And today we have another guest with us. Somebody who, as, as I often said, it's a repeated team here. We have been very lucky to connect with people over the last few years, you know, not just on the show, I'm talking about pretty much the last few years, people who have sort of been the resistance, who've sort of spoken up, and who in another life, I know for one for myself, would never have connected with. I mean, just look at who I'm talking to right now, Don Nicholson, well out of the league of actually doing a radio show with an ex-national president of FEDS, but what do I know? But anyways, our guest today is Helen Mendeno. Now, Helen is somebody I connected with early last year, early 2022, and, you know, Facebook friends, and it's for the first time today that I'm putting a face to the name, a dry stock farmer from the South Waikato. Helen and her husband farm sheep, beef, and dairy grazers on a 900-hectare family farm. I believe you have two young girls, Helen. And yes, that's, that's right. Welcome to the show. Please tell us a bit more about yourself. I've, I have a brief of your CV. I know you have an undergraduate degree in biological sciences, but there's a whole lot more to you. Tell Thank you for having me on, Don and Jasprit. It's um, it's a real honor to be here. 
Uh, so a bit about me. I was born in um, Auckland, uh, definitely not a city girl whatsoever, though. I'm happiest in the middle of nowhere. Uh, both my parents um, come from farming backgrounds, so it's obviously in the blood. Um, yeah, always had a real love of the outdoors and nature and um, that sort of thing. Always been very inquisitive which is, I guess, what led me to studying a Bachelor of Science at Auckland University. Um, I then spent much of my 20s um, travelling overseas, um, back and forth to Europe, America, uh, travelled through Nepal and Africa a couple of times. So, um, yeah, got some really good life experience over there. Um, came back and had a couple of interesting roles in regulatory affairs um, in the dietary supplement um, industry, which, um, yeah, I, I was really good to, to gain some knowledge in that industry. I then met my husband and moved down to his family farm in South Waikato. Uh, we've got two lovely children that love the outdoors if they're not on their horses they're on their dirt bikes so we're very lucky and um yeah probably best not to count the amount of pet sheep lambs chickens horses etc <laughs> um so yeah love uh love farming um and we're heavily involved in our local community my husband's um the chairman of the local hall, um, the um, head coach of our local pony club. Um, and because of who I am, I wanted to be well-educated with regards to farming as well. So I have completed three Massey University short courses. Um, the first one was advanced soil conservation, and then the second one was sustainable nutrient management, and the last one was farm environment planning. And, and boy, that's a, that's great that you have taken the time to do that. What have you found in those courses that you've been able to apply inside the farm gate, and and you think other farmers should apply, or 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 was it more like? Uh, what you found was pretty much common practice inside the farm gate for most people. Is there is there big things that need to change in your mind based on uh, what you've learned in those three courses? Well, I loved the depth of knowledge that I gained from the sustainable nutrient management course um, because that enabled me to have a lot more control about our fertilizer um, plan, which was great. I sort of felt that I gathered a, a really good depth of knowledge there, which yeah put us a lot more in control in the driving seat rather than just having to believe someone else. So that's been huge that we um yeah we drive drive that and we made some big changes um as a result of that too which was really exciting so, um, mon so mon monetary changes or or application of nutrients changes application of nutrients changes right. Right. yes yeah. yes um other things i was able to look at the farm um from a true sort of soil conservation 
way as well. So that's helped with our improving our environmental footprint. Um, it was also a good way of um, of learning the sort of differences in the practical versus the academic um, application of these things. Um, there were a few other farmers on the courses, which was great, and we connected and um, and compared notes. Um, and then there were the, just the true academics. And, um, yeah, interesting to see the differing viewpoints of um, practice versus academic. So it was really good to be able to, to see it from a farmer's point of view. Um, and know the limitations from an academic point of view, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And so did you find that the academic uh, people that don't come out and own and run farms, did they sort of treat a fair bit of it like uh, the rainfall's the same, the soil type's the same, the topography's the same, um, when we know on our farms everything is different? And the trouble is, my observation is that many people think that haven't that aren't actively farming think that one size fits all, and um, I would imagine you would suggest that it might not. Yes, definitely. And I think the biggest thing that jumped out for me with regards to the farm environment planning course was the lack of knowledge of our budgetary constraints and and time as well. They they seem to think there was an endless amount of time and money to spend on um, the dream projects when the reality of farming is, is quite different. So there was a real gap in their practical knowledge there, which was, yeah, really sad to see, actually. Um, so that really jumped out at me. Yeah, none of these environmental enhancements that we're sort of like to do um, come cheap. Uh, and, yeah, I'm happy that um, New Zealand farmers don't take handouts from anybody to do the, the good things on their farms. But it's getting to the pointy end, isn't it, where the expectation is just too much, uh, especially on a year when, uh, oh, when times are bad. You know, we're, we're expected to still push on with the dreams of the regulator and yeah, the farm plans uh, I know in Waikato and Southland are exercising a whole lot, exercising a whole lot of minds, let alone a whole lot of um, budgets. So, yeah, look, good on you for um, for doing that and, and observing that because I think people like you do need to be in your community, sort of exposing this stuff. Yes, uh, because it's yes. you know the minister for primary industry ain't going to expose it to the country. It's going to have to be grassroots people that do. So exactly. Just, Moving on, um, you know, part of the reason we've got together for for this um, chat was around this emissions caper. And uh, I've just read an article from Radio New Zealand today that the very first sentence uh, has, has it wrong for me. Um, they talk about uh, agriculture being the dominant um, emissions uh, in New Zealand and causing the most global warming. Well, one, um, no one can tell you how much global warming their emissions are going to give, uh, let in one year, let alone five or ten years. But 
Two, that first sentence of that Radio New Zealand article is completely fallacious. Now, yes. I hope I hope we can unbundle that today. Um, what's your uh, introduction to all this? What what what? I know you're interested in it. What what motivates you? That's a really good question. Um, yes, yeah, so I think what all what started this all off is um, I'm not sure if it's the scientist in me or the critical thinker in me. But I'm very, very wary of statements such as the science is settled, um, as these phrases have never been used before in the history of science, and it would mean we've stopped progressing as a civilization as well. Um, so I've been really alarmed by those statements, um, and I've been closely following the emissions tax proposals, as I believe it's the biggest threat that New Zealand agriculture has ever faced. Um, and yeah, looking at this from a real sort of dry stock farmers perspective as well, but I'm sure that dairy farmers share um, very similar concerns. And um, yeah, let's face it, um, what's happening right now is a scam on biblical levels of deception. Um, how does a normal and vital greenhouse gas that exists in the parts per million range in our atmosphere somehow gain the function of completely dominating our climate in every single government policy? None of it makes sense. And one thing that really um, angers me has been, um, I know our one source of truth government likes to use these phrases but it beggars belief that our own levy body is parroting them as well. It's also pretty insulting to our intelligence too. Yep. And I will read out a bit of what, uh, Helen, you publicly read out at a beef and lamb meeting in Tirao earlier this year. Right. And you say to them, and I'll, I'm, I'm, these are your words that I'm reading out, I have been usually disappointed with the direction of beef and lamb over the last few years in their willingness to jump so quickly onto the emissions bus and throw farmers under it while the bus is quickly gathering speed. Beef and lamb try to package and sell the Hivaka Ekanoa dream to farmers under the guise of we know best, even though farmers always knew that the devil is in the detail and taxing emissions would be extremely detrimental to our industry. It was very strategic of the government to use the sector's levy funded bodies to get the emissions pricing over the line. You certainly didn't mince your words then. Can you tell me what was the reaction in the room when you read this out at a public meeting? And this, I should say, listeners, this is just one paragraph out of four pages that Helen read out. So, you know, this is maybe maybe 5% of what she said that day. But yeah, to be a you know, fly on the wall that day. Uh, sure. So... Yes, that was very interesting. Um, I read out the four-page document and um, all the other farmers present uh, applauded me and asked for a copy, uh, which I thought was very interesting. But I did get the death stares from the um, beef and lamb and the silver fern farm representatives. Um, basically, I was left feeling really uneasy and it was really clear that they've swallowed the Kool-Aid and are adamant that they're on the right path. And when I sent a follow-up email with further questions, one of them being, is beef and lamb prepared to challenge the government on climate science, especially in light of the fact that new science is emerging all the time? 
The reply I received from the Beef and Lamb manager was, and I quote, no, the weight of evidence is becoming incontrovertible that human activity is impacting the climate. Even if you choose to believe that it is part of some natural cycle, that doesn't mean we should do nothing to minimise the change. Investing resources to argue whether climate change is man-made or not is not a productive use of levies, unquote. So, yeah, I'll just let that statement and its implications sink in for everyone. Um, But, yeah, personally, that moral crusade really, really concerns me. And this is what Dawn have I have often spoken about, Dawn, isn't it, that our levy-funded bodies somehow need to be seen to do Mm -hmm. do something, regardless of how ineffective unnecessary, mm-hmm. expensive, and downright suicidal that might that might be. They, mm-hmm. why, why is this insistence, Don? What do you think? Oh, it's, uh, you know, the, it's the machinery of, of, a, of a compulsory levy. Uh, you know, they've, they've come into an advocacy space as well as doing the R&D and extension work. Um, and, you know, my view is that beef and lamb and dairy and Z shouldn't be anywhere near advocacy. Um, Helen, may, you may have an opinion about that, but I've just read um, the Farmers Weekly of August 14 and uh, the C, uh, sorry, the chair of um, Farmers Weekly is, is saying here, we're, the headline is, we're here for farmers large and small, and she gives a whole <laughs> lot of um, reasons, and uh, advocacy is only 40% of their business. Well, advocacy shouldn't be any of it. Um, and so... Helen, yeah, I've I've talked about this a lot. Um, and so what's your view about the is it is it a levy? Uh the, the so when we to listeners, when we talk about levies, we're talking about um agencies like Dairy and Z and Beef and Lamb, and that they have others for different industries, different prod, produce uh uh entities. Um, but they're like a kilogram on a um kilogram of sorry, a, a cents in a dollar. Sorry, wrong again. It's a um, a price on a kilogram or a lamb, a kilogram of milk solids or a lamb um, or something like that. So it builds up quite a revenue stream for the for these entities, and of course they use that supposedly for the farmer good, the industry good. It's about whether that funding is giving value. So sorry, that was a long way. I asked you the question, um, Helen. Are you observing? Um, Something's not right here. Uh, feds seem to be sort of hunting in the same pack as the other two that I've mentioned. When feds was once upon a time the independent voice of farming, doesn't appear to be anymore. I I agree one hundred percent with you, um, Don. What's the point of them being in advocacy space when they are doing such a detrimental job to our industry? It it makes. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's very clear that they're in bed with the government. Now, I'm looking at the consolidated statement of uh, revenue and expenses for September 22 for beef and lamb. And it says levies received close to $30 million. That's that's a big sum of money. So, and it is, we don't even have a choice there, do, do we, Don? So it's, it's a compulsory deduction, just like for dairy farmers like us. It's a compulsory d- deduction, and of course, um, Federated Farms that I used to, to chair uh, is voluntary payment, so quite a different beast, and that's why I keep talking about the independent voice of farming, the one that's got um, no levy, the one that's got voluntary membership should be the clean, principled um, 
you know, top of the pack. So anyway, look, that's uh, that's a story that uh, we can talk about a bit later as we go through the the science of 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 the discussion that we want to get to next. You know, effectively, what we've noted, Helen, and I think you have picked it up, is that the science around methane has been a bit distant. The way si- uh, methane and the the um, its supposed warming effects and its its negative effects in the atmosphere have been overstated at almost to the point you would argue, I think, of deceit and deception. What's your take on the latest uh, sort of, or what's your understanding of the latest science that you can put your hand on? That's that's hundred percent right, and I think it's really important that people know the history of the GWP metrics, okay? So I'll outline this for those who have never heard this before. Um, The initial global global warming potential metric for methane is called GWP 100, and it states that methane is 28 times more warming than CO2. So because agriculture is such a large part of our economy, using this metric is very significant in a New Zealand context as it calculates that methane from farming contributes 40% of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions. So these calculations have determined all of New Zealand's pledges and budgets with regards to emissions. However, there was a new calculation from IPCC themselves in 2018 that stated that the previous GWP calculation of methane was incorrect and the new and improved metric is called GWP star. Therefore, using this new metric means New Zealand's agricultural methane contribution is now 10% and not 40%. So this is obviously huge news for New Zealand farming and potentially huge for our economy. What it means is that all the targets and pledges that were made under the Paris Accord are based on the flawed metric of GWP 100 and are three to four times worse than they actually are. Therefore, obviously, everything needs to be reworked and recalculated, and that's all our targets, pledges and calculations. But our Minister for the Environment, James Shaw, refuses to budge. And we've even had our very own research scientists, Jock Allison and Professor David Frame, who's the director of the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute, and also Miles Allen from Oxford University, have expressed their grave concerns to James Shaw regarding his refusal to acknowledge the new GWP metric. So if New Zealand was to accept the new GWP star metric, it could save New Zealand billions of dollars be better for our farmers, and prove that New Zealand is a world leader in low emissions. This is the really important factor. All our current targets and pledges, which are enshrined in every piece of legislation, are still based on the old GWP 100 metric. And all of the above points highlight the corruption of the government with regards to calculating New Zealand's agriculture emissions. why is it, did you think, that the very latest AR6 um, assessment report 6 from the IPCC, um, it states that um, methane has been over uh, over emphasised in our inventory yeah. by a factor of three to four? Why do you think they wouldn't change that and get it back to, you know, obviously a quarter or a third of what 
that 40% you talked about is. And it would make a massive change and it would take the foot off the brake, uh, the throat of farming. Um, why do you think James Shaw isn't recommending that this is all happening? Has to be entirely political, doesn't it? Yeah, you you tell me. It, it, biggest belief. I so, I shake my head. I can't uh, work it out. Um, yeah, I don't every, think any any uh, any logical farmer can work that one out. And, and at that meeting in Tirau, you even talked about the um, the Happer and Van Wingarden paper um, that talks about uh, um, there's no proven reason to reduce methane. Um, and they say uh, in their abstract proposals to place harsh restrictions on methane emissions because of warming fears are not justified by facts. Um, farmers are starting to know that. Yes. And yet, and yet we have not only the Ministry for the Environment, but our own farming entities won't won't talk about it. Why yes. is that, do you think? Yes, 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 yes. This is my whole point. Exactly. Mm. We've got increasing evidence that the GWP metrics are just models and they don't line up with observations. The GWP lab experiments were done with dry air and it doesn't mimic real life as there is always a lot of vapour in the air. Yep. When you put methane into dry air, it has a warming effect, but when you put it into normal air, which is water vapour, then methane has no warming effect at all. Therefore, methane warming may be purely theoretical, and in practice, methane may not warm the atmosphere at all. So this is a huge elephant in the room as far as I'm concerned. Well, it is for us as well, because we know this stuff, and we know that in a real and mixed atmosphere, um, what Happer and Van Wingarden came up with said um, is virtually impossible. In fact, the warming effect is minuscule. Even if you double yes. um, methane, um, yes. it's just... It, it just can't have the effect that we're being targeted for. So, again, farmers uh, at Tirao and around the country have heard this. Uh, recently, we had Tom Sheehan go around talk, yes. talking about the Happer and Van Wingarden yes. papers. And it's not just Happer and Van Wingarden, by the by the way. There's other papers by Coe and others that, that follow this track. Um, why, again, so not only have we got GW Star not being used, we potentially could have GWP um, of less than one. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and why can't we get that through? I know, oh. I know. That's what I don't understand, and that's what I want to highlight. Like we yes. have the this new science and, and these scientists who are putting their neck on the line, they have got nothing to gain from this. They are throwing our industry a lifeline and why – is our levy body and others refusing to engage with them. That's what I want to know. None of that makes sense. Well, I have, you know, tried to look at it and I've looked at the Ministry for Environment's their guidance documents for organizations on how to calculate uh, their emissions. And in that particular document called Ministry Guidance August 22 for uh, details of measuring emissions for organization, it says that even though there is updated methodology available in the 2019 refinement to IPCC standards, we have calculated the calculations right now that is being foisted upon everyone using equations in the 2006 IPCC guidelines for, nas for national greenhouse gas inventories. And we are trying not to muddle them up because otherwise it is just going to get uh, too much. We are going to stick to what we 
began with. And that is pretty much all there is to it. They are not budging from their 2006 figures. 2006 figures. How many years is that? 17? It's criminal. It's, it's, it's criminal behavior. So so when we re, uh, ran the fight against ridiculous taxes in 2003, you know, we sort of saw the hockey stick graphs and things like that, and you sort of had to believe because we were very trusting. Um, and, you know, there was something to see there, So, uh, but it didn't feel right. Now we've got, I mean, 2006 is the stuff that Jasper Eats just written about, uh, read out. Um, we're in 2023, we've got light years of information um, more than we had in 2003. But we've got our, um, not only our ministries and our politicians, we've got our levy bodies, the people we pay to represent our individual sovereignty won't stand up for us. It is written very clearly that using updated methodologies in the 2019 refinement would be inconsistent with the New Zealand Greenhouse Gas Inventory 1990 to 2020 reporting at the time of publication of this guide. It might be used or considered for future inventories, but until then, use the example calculations done using AR4GWPs. AR4, so 2006 reports, greenhouse warming potential calculations. This is someone laughing all the way to the bank at our expense. There's no other words for this. Yeah. Like I said, it's a scam of biblical levels of deception. It's shocking. I mean, they have created so many of these tentacles, haven't they, in this much time, Don? Insidious. And one person, you know, backing the other, the other backing the uh, third. It's a gravy train. Uh, oh, oh, there's the climate methane pledges and things like that. There's there, there's banking, um, uh, you know, sustainable priv- finance guidelines. There's yeah. all this stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's not so, Helen. If you're um, a bit lost on that name, I can't yeah. blame you because there's so many damned um, uh, entities that are yeah. feeding at the trough of of the methane yeah. story. Yeah. But you know what? There's there are so many scientists speaking out now, and how can we ignore them? What I discovered was there's a um organization called um Climate Intelligence or Clintel. Yes, yep. for short. Yes. And it's a global network of over 1,500 scientists and professionals. Mm. And um, their website was amazing. I'll read out one of their quotes. Climate science should be less political, while climate policy should be more scientific. Computer <laughs> models have many shortcomings and are not remotely plausible as global policy tools. There is no statistical evidence that global warming is intensifying hurricanes, floods, droughts, and such like natural disasters or making them more frequent. However, there is ample evidence that CO2 mitigation measures are as damaging as they are costly, unquote. So that's just mind-blowing, and that's a global network of scientists who are speaking up against this climate sham but we have our media don't we and if there's one thing i've learned over this nonsense is the last three years and you know why people like me and don and all of us are chatting on this this alternative media yes. is that the voices of reason are not amplified yes. whereas if you have bright pink hair 
or an occasional yes. funny looking handlebar mustache yes. like masan would say you seem to yes. get so yes. much uh, you know of the spotlight mm. and just it it's unbelievable that we've reached a stage in this country built on the back of agriculture absolutely now being hammered hammered and just the recent downturn in the fontera fortunes they are not just farmer fortunes let me tell you that the ripple effects go so far yes. and wide in the community uh, a friend of mine who who we've also had on the show mark warren he commented on one of my posts today saying that when the second payout drop happened a few days ago mark wrote he says this might just go down in history as the time when the new zealand recession turned into a depression yes. i hope he's wrong but mm. yeah mm. there is a whole lot more to this and that's why you've seen media paint farming in such a bad light because where have we seen this before during covid anyone who was against the narrative had to mm. be isolated yes and you know sort of painted in a really bad light it's the same thing now it's coming in so handy that the farmer bashing has gone on yes. for so long that yes. if if they go down the gurgler now people seem to think yeah. it won't affect them yeah yeah exactly exactly we we know it's the backbone of our economy isn't it it is so moving back to um to to the methane uh, story you know, you've you've alluded in some of your your notes um about mitigation now i i think it's a strange word but let's let's use it um that means um things that can be used to perhaps reduce methane in this instance um how how do you view the mitigations that our entities like the greenhouse gas consortium and others are bringing to the table have they brought anything to the table and should they even bother have we spending too much money on that chasing a dream is that what it is is this the empire building you talked about earlier well it's my personal opinion that they they shouldn't be bothering but they seem to um, have a different opinion so these mitigation technologies basically it's technology that reduces methane emissions such as methane vaccines methane boluses feed inhibitors and genetically modified forages and um this is where it gets quite deep with all the amount of money that has been spent so i'll highlight some of these for you okay. um i know my eyes Zealand, are going the center for climate action on agricultural emissions and its aims are to accelerate the research development and commercialization of tools and technology to reduce emissions so it's got two components its first component is um agrizero which is the center for climate action joint venture and it's a government partnership with partners such as Fontera Ansco Silverfern Farms etc and it will see 170 million dollars invested over the first 4 years and the goal was to help new zealand farmers reduce their agricultural emissions by 30% by 2030 and its first funded project is the startup of the company Ruminant Biotech which is developing a methane inhibiting bolus The second component is New Zealand Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Research Centre, 
and its goals are to enhance New Zealand's international reputation as a leader in agricultural greenhouse gas research by funding an innovative research program of international quality and standing and leading New Zealand's science input to the Global Research Alliance on Greenhouse Gases. And I'll walk you through how much money they're getting. Right, Beef and Lamb Sheep Genetics Partnership, its industry partner is Beef and Lamb, and it received $2.2 million. Uh, Ruminant Biotech Program, its industry partner is Ruminant Biotech, uh, $7.8 million. Uh, here's a quote from their website. Our goal is to help New Zealand reach its emissions reductions targets and will set New Zealand up as a leader in the methane inhibitor industry globally, unquote. Right, we've got methane vaccine research, $2.5 million, and the greenhouse gas testing facility, $11.7 million. There's also been $25 million from the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment's Endeavour Fund, Ag Research and Dairy NZ, invested in genetically modified forages research to produce a gene-edited grass that reduces methane emissions. So it's not hard to see that methane mitigation is creating big job and career opportunities. There's lots of money to be made out there, isn't there? And my understanding is you've understated it massively um, because isn't, isn't there a, a more new, than likely I have. Uh, is there some new climate change centre being set up uh, yeah, to tune part of about the budget. $360 million. Um, uh, It's just, it, it's unbelievable how this has grown like topsy since I started uh, sort of involving myself in this stuff about 1998. But there we are, Helen, um, you're paying for it now and I'm not. Yes. <laughs> and, but, but, other, but other taxpayers are and that's where I, that's where my check, uh, it annoys me. So, yes. you know, you're going through all that. There's a big problem, isn't there? There's a big problem around integrity. Is that how you're yes. seeing it? Yes. And how how is it that, you know, we're coming up to an election, even if there's a political change, a, 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 a style change into a right of centre parties, or you know, I would argue they're just centre parties, um, is anything going to change? What is, what's certainly, going to be the circuit breaker? Certainly nothing's going to change. I will read you out a... Um, I saw this in uh, yesterday's um, Farmers Weekly from uh, the national government. Mm-hmm. A national government will remove the ban on gene technology, which will help give farmers the tools they need to reduce methane emissions, such as gene-edited crops, feed and livestock. So mm-hmm. there we go. There's not going to be any halts on the advancement of our biotechnology. But like you say... How can, this is what I struggle with, how can beef and lamb's direction and vision be so misaligned with your average farmer's directions and and visions? Well, and and, and having gone around 50 meetings, you know, around the country and run 50 meetings, uh, reading page 19 of the Farmers Weekly, you'd believe it's all tickety-boo and... um, the chair, um, Kate Ackland, thinks um, it's, it's just part of their mission. They're here for farmers, large and small. But for something that is so, and you know, we've got entities here that you might want to talk about this, Helen. It never sat well with me, and I lobbied against it. 
Yeah, farmers that had meetings at the field days, it's coming out now uh, in today's media uh, with the Prime Minister in 2019, they were having meetings uh, privately with the Prime Minister and the Minister of for Primary Industry, and they thought they could um, sort this out. We'd do an emissions pricing regime. So they sent away um, the teams and developed this HWEN concept. And, and they came back with a concept that was going to actually have the entities that you pay into um, supporting a tax on themselves. That's never been done <laughs> in the world. Never no. been done in the world. No. But that's what they came up with. I and know. Then, and then we have, we have these farming entities supporting that. World first stupidity, I call it. Yes, yes, but I agree. How could the Prime Minister think that she could get away with that at the time? I mean, was she such a saleswoman, such a yeah, a hard case um, <laughs> you know, salesperson that she could convince them that that was so important? How do you think that could Who We've just talked about the empire building. That seems to be the nub of all this. That's what I'm deducing from your discussion and your notes, that there's an empire-building regime yes. going on here and to, yes. hell, to hell with the farmers. Yes, yes. Right. I, I, I agree. And, it, yeah, I mean, they've obviously got something to gain because we certainly don't. And I've been struggling to understand their direction but i found some gems which maybe makes me understand <laughs> but not okay with where they're coming from i'll oh. read this out now here's a quote from a recent beef and lamb media release our vision for the future is one where we're demonstrating that new zealand farmers are world leading through measuring and reporting emissions at farm level we were hitting science-based targets, investing in the research and development of mitigation technologies. These are widely available and the market is incentivizing farmers to use them, unquote. <laughs> Unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, I've been watching for years um, ministers, successive ministers, but James Shaw's specifically um, in recent times talking about this brand premium you know, brand New Zealand, uh, the premium will gain in the marketplace if we had tick all these boxes. And of course, you know, when Jasper and I look at the ESGs and all the rest of the stuff around sustainability, we know that um, everyone's being squeezed into a wedge or a straitjacket. Um, and it's going to be, well, that's where he's got us. He's got us in this position. If you don't tick all these boxes, don't do all this know your number, don't pay your emissions pricing, we're going to get less for our produce. Well, actually, um, based on all that compliance you just talked about um, and the taxes that they want to apply, might it just be that we just let's have a voluntary scheme and see see how it sort of, whether it survives or fails. I mean, this coercive concept, I think, is what you're getting at here. Um, it's just, it's all cost for no gain to inside the farm gate. Exactly. It's complete virtue signalling. And how can their views be so misaligned? Like, I, I honestly think they've lost their way. I, I found this in Beef and Lamb's submission to the New Zealand government. Okay, this is their um, 
COP28, so Conference of the Party's submission to the New Zealand government, quote, that New Zealand should take a leadership position on agricultural greenhouse gases and work with like-minded others on issues such as greenhouse gas metrics. Here's another one. New Zealand should be seeking to be seen as a leader on combating global warming, both in international negotiations and through our domestic policies and actions that will reduce temperature increase, unquote. Now, if that doesn't ruffle every farm's feathers, I'm not sure what will, because it certainly ruffled mine. Yeah. Now, you you look at their, uh, you know, financial statements, again, talking about 30 per 9 million, they say separately that that's what we got funded. We have, they said what we are doing among different things. They say we champion the sector. That's where your levies yeah. go. Yes. Methane targets. Beef and lamb continues to call on the government to report annually on new warming as well as gross emissions. And in 2022, started working on a joint strategy with Feds and Dairy NZ to get the government to amend New Zealand's methane targets, reduction targets, to ensure they are aligned with the science. We continue to push for the latest science to be applied in this review, citing the recent IPCC recognition of GWP as a change in scientific understanding. Are these guys, they spend millions on their scientists and experts. Where's Happer Wingarden? Where is Tom Sheehan's reports? Where is yes. the utter irrelevance of this as a gas? Yes. This is all the levy-funded bodies, as well as, Don, your non-levy-funded body, feds, all of these have gotten together to sell us down the down Yes, the yes absolutely. That's very evident. And, and, can, you know, and one would have thought that at least someone would think, yeah, you know, all right, let's let's screw them. Let's screw them a little bit. Let's not yeah. kill the goose, let's lay the golden egg here. Yeah, 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 that's, that's right. And can you see that world-leading theme pop up all the time? I see, I see where this is. So who, who, who gave them the authority? I mean, regardless of what... How say yes. you quantify 40% of New Zealand's emissions are at 20, 50, 80? The fact still remains that our share of the world's emissions, even if we believe that they are going to destroy us all and in you know incinerate us all, are still 0.17% gross. That's exactly. less than a quarter of the percent. Less than exactly. a quarter. Why do we need to be a world leader? We already are. In fact, exactly. we should be recognized for what we've already done. Yes. And all this nonsense about championing farms and getting them a better price. Well, let me tell you something. Ponterra, farmer here, supplier. We are, demonstrably, New Zealand as a country produces the lowest carbon footprint milk in the world. Yes. We're getting peanuts right now. Close yes. to 75% of New Zealand Ponterra farmers this year may not make a profit, depending, of course, on their debt levels. Uh, so where uh, is this premium? Who quantifies this? What does this championing mean? Either if either you measure something, and otherwise all you're championing is a dismal failure, just shut the shop, stop taking yeah. these compulsory levies, and go home. Yeah. You're not worth this. You're not just you're just not worth the trust of the farming uh, farmers. Yeah, good point. Wow. Absolutely. Yes. Jaspreet's got this line, comply till you die. And uh, that's that's where, where it looks like. I mean, I've, I've just opened up, as we're talking, a study in Australia that talks about, uh, and it's around red tape uh, in, uh, in mining and agriculture. 
it says uh, since the year 2000 spending on commonwealth environmental bureaucracy so just environmental bureaucracy has increased by 470 percent while the size of the ag industry nationwide has increased by only 175 percent so oh. the commonwealth's environmental bureaucracy has grown at three times the rate of the ag sector and for every job created in environmental bureaucracy 14 jobs have been destroyed in Australia's ag sector. Mm. Um, that's, okay. that's unbelievable stuff. I hope to get the author of this on our show in the, in the next few weeks. But um, do you think that's happening in New Zealand? Do you think we're feeding a fair few people outside the farm gate and they're destroying um, jobs inside the farm gate? Jo not only jobs, they're, they're destroying enthusiasm to, to be a farmer. Uh, oh, with, without a shadow of a doubt, I think morale's never, ever been so low as it is now. It's impossible to see the wood for the, for the trees, to be honest. Mm. Mm. I, I think the 80s were pretty bad. And, you know, that's my beef too, Helen. And, you know, you're too young to to um, realise the, the words I'm going to uh, to <laughs> say here. Um, yeah, we, we had our ETS in 1985. It's called an Efficiency Trading Scheme. And that is subsidy-free farming. Yes. And I've made the point that if other countries in the world come to our status, our gold standard, then we can start talking about emissions. Yes. No, no yep. one has. And you know what? Yes. None of our levy bodies want to talk this story, although I, in saying that I did hear one sort of make mutterings the other day. But I remember that a former Minister for Climate Change and, 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 and Trade he said to me, uh, red-faced one day when I brought this up in a big meeting, that if you think New Zealand farmers can compete with the rest of the world, if they were all subsidy-free, um, you're a dreamer. And I said, bring it on, Minister. Now, I still stand by that. You should be able to face, even though we're distant from the markets uh, and we're a massive exporter of, of, of food products, um, we should be able to compete. That's our job, compete. Um, but yeah, obviously the sentiment at the in the halls of power was that uh, no, no, New Zealand farmers couldn't compete if we were all on an even footing and they were subsidy uh, unsubsidized in in Europe. Well, we know that there is massive environmental or they're called multifunctionality payments going into the farmers of um, the EU uh, and even probably now into the um, the Europe the British farmers. So where the playing field's not even, regardless of how we cut or slice it. So, you know, I don't know, uh, Helen. You're still got the um, got the bit between the teeth, and you still want to be farming, and it's all good. What's your um, what's your attitude? Uh, what's your research tell you about GM and um, perhaps gene editing? What's your research saying to you on that? I mean, is there, here's a question for you, um, I, and I I don't know much about this um i was asked the other day is there any ge or gm food in new zealand and i said well heck i don't know but i assume soy milk is probably from gm soy don't know um do you know the answer to that all i know is we've got very little if any currently gm approved foods we, we still have a predominantly GM-free status. Right. Um, I've been researching consumer attitudes to GM food because 
beef and lamb are telling us that um, our saviour is going to be these mitigation technologies, and that includes gene-edited, low-methane-producing grasses, um, I am extremely sceptical of them steamrolling ahead of this. Anyway, so what I found was there was an interesting American report published called The Public Perceptions of Genetically Modified Foods, a National Study of American Knowledge and Opinion. It stated that less than half of those surveyed believe it is safe to consume GM foods. Almost two-thirds feel serious accidents involving GM foods are bound to happen. And 54% feel GM foods threaten the natural order of things. We saw very clearly that consumers did not embrace the impossible burger. And personally, I don't believe they're going to embrace this biotech Frankenstein meat we're going to produce either. I don't honestly think that our premium consumers are going to choose meat produced with genetically modified food in its food chain over meat produced without it. Aye. So I've just, as, as we're talking, sorry, sorry, Jasper, I interrupted. Um, it says um, there's no genetically modified crops grown in commercially in New Zealand at the moment. No fresh fruit, vegetables or meat is sold in New Zealand as genetically modified. Uh, however, some processed foods may contain approved genetically modified ingredients that have been imported. So we've got a ways to go. I know that um, there's people talking about uh, um, the old the old status was case by case, everything would be uh, assessed. And of course, I don't think, as we've just said, nothing's got through the gate. So uh, I'm not sure where this will go, but it's I think the it's good that people um, ask questions and put don't put a stopper on everything unless they've got um, very good reasons. So uh, let's hope that the, um, the authorities do have the right ambition, not just to satiate the commercial interests, but to uh, also assess what society gleans as acceptable. I think that's probably where it's got to end up. And, uh, you know, it's a bit like the nuclear story, the way I read it. Um you know, we can push a lot of stuff down the road and some may never come to New Zealand. We don't know. But mm. it's you're definitely going to have to have the conversation again because it's 20 years since we last had it. Yeah, uh, it just concer concerns me, though, Don. We're already the um, lowest emissions producers in the world and we've got there by um, only using sort of natural. still natural non yeah. Yep. processes as in good farming practice uh, improved genetics etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we've got this this beautiful reputation to go and undo that all um through growing genetically modified foods again we're we're being sold a, a solution to a problem that doesn't exist in the in the first place we can't we can undo that and and we've we're told we beef and lamb keep telling us that we've got a premium market i really don't think that they want to be eating product that's been eating genetic new novel genetically modified forages right and so uh, about 2005 i think it was there was a uh, an otago university um, professor, Dr. John Knight, talked about how he'd done 
um, surveys, and this document was called Trust and Country Image. And, you know, that's, that was absolutely what New Zealand was, trustworthy, safe food producers. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, but, but here's the rub, isn't it? You know, the pressure for you to produce more out of each hectare or the same but with less input costs is not coming from the market. It's no, not, that's right. It's, it's coming from our internal forces yeah. who are putting all these costs. And that Queensland example about the regulator costs mm. Uh, mm. Uh, is the problem. So yeah. I, I know this has turned into an opinion from me again. Um, it's quite common, isn't it, Jasper? Um, <laughs> um, but, but the pressure to take more from the environment in New Zealand is coming from the people in suits. Yes. Not not the overseas market, the New Zealand um, job scheme. Mm -hmm. And until Mm -hmm. we get that through uh, to farmers, I think we're going to constantly have these battles. Um, We're going to have to say, as Groundswell's doing, no more, just say no. And we'll get all the people, we'll get all the marketers saying, Oh well, that's that's naive. That's uh, that's underselling yourself, and it's going to cost you dearly. It well, is already costing us. That's the look point. at the dairy farmers; they are not earning anything for for the world's lowest, uh, you know, emissions mm. milk. Yeah, and yet you have beef and lamb spending. I'm just looking at fourteen odd million dollars of your levies on virtually what they call in what do they call this? Supporting farming excellence. I mean, word salads. And that's why I stumble over these words. And that includes, how does it support farmer excellence? Greenhouse gas workshops to help farmers know their numbers. Trees within farms, opportunities with carbon workshops. Seriously? Indoctrination workshops? I mean, people should literally be voting feet and stop going to these. Let those be empty rooms that echo with just the you know the sounds of the one odd instructor there and the odd uh, attendant or two but let that be it it's when these farmers tend to go along to these places i think often also for socialization seeing another face yeah. often you haven't been off the farm for a while and there you go and for me this is really galling we are paying just like we paid our media to lie to us we yes. are paying our levy funded bodies to not just lie yes. to us Sheer, yeah. sheer blatant indoctrinate us in the yes. science from 2006 AR4 that's the United Nations uh, governing you know environmental body IPCC's AR4 report that came out in 2006 that's the science we are following New Zealand and uh, somehow it is supposed to magically get a whole lot of dollars raining down I ain't seen anything yet I won't quite hold my breath but uh, Helen, before we go, is there anything else you would like to talk about that Don and I may not have covered? I know we had a huge brief here, but the floor um, is yours. Um, basically, I I just want to give my personal thoughts and feedback on on where I think uh, beef and lamb. My, my opinion of beef and lamb. Mm. So, what I what I want to know is why is beef and lamb driving us at Operation Warp Speed, when most New Zealand farmers can see the big picture outlook on how dangerous it is to be using fast track novel biotechnology such as methane vaccines, methane boluses, 
and gene-edited grasses, who in their right mind would volunteer their country to be a guinea pig for this ideological nonsense. We would never be able to reverse the harm done when problems arise. To me, it's obvious that beef and lamb has become enslaved in climate politics. I think their direction has been swayed by career aspirations, empire building and personal moral crusades. I don't believe they are representing the views of the majority of New Zealand farmers. Possibly the board members and management team are suffering from noble cause corruption where the ends justify the means and they have been blindsided by the perceived reality and not the actual facts. How can beef and lamb say they're working for us when they are also receiving large funding government grants from the government at the same time? I also want to say that farmers are not environmental terrorists. We don't mind playing our part for true, tangible environmental outcomes, but we are being forced to swallow a very bitter pull that has no measurable outcome on the environment whatsoever. The reality of this nonsense is that the millions of dollars that have been spent on climate politics could have been spent making true, measurable benefits to New Zealand's environment. Imagine if all that money had been spent fencing waterways. And this is a very important point that I wish the public knew. It's a real insult to our intelligence and completely demoralising to ignore farmer concerns regarding the legitimacy of the climate science. It's like no one is allowed to talk about the elephant in the room. I think every farmer has a line in the sand, and I think I speak for the majority of farmers that being forced to participate in this ideological nonsense is the straw that will break the camel's back. And then what will our rural communities look like when you have a mass exodus of mum and dad farmers from the industry? It's not a pretty picture for our communities or the country as a whole. And why has this reality and human factor not been considered? Um, I've spoken to hundreds of concerned farmers about this issue, and I honestly think that about 90% of farmers know that taxing and trying to reduce animal farts and burps in order to alter global temperatures is absurd, absurdity beyond belief. Even more absurd is the notion of being seen to be doing something. There is no room in our businesses for virtue signalling. Beef and lamb cannot continue to fob us off with excuses that markets and consumers are demanding climate-conscious products when they are openly declaring yeah. to the government their encouragement and participation that New Zealand should take a leadership position on agricultural greenhouse gases. The arrogance of the Beef and Lamb Board and management is obvious as they refuse to acknowledge our concerns and are intent on riding roughshod on anyone that dares question their direction. They quickly get labelled as a climate denier and not worthy of a response. Mm. Yeah. Why do they Thanks. consider their moral crusade of saving the world superior over farmers' concerns about saving our industry, our communities and our economy? It's a sad state of affairs that differing views, values and stances can't be debated openly instead of being shut down and it shows how divided we have become as a country where we, are allowed, where we aren't allowed to have robust discussions anymore. There was a great moral philosopher called Eric Vogelin who described the dream world phenomenon. These people live in a dream world. Things that normal people consider morally insane 
become legitimate means by which to achieve their dream world goals. It's beyond comprehension for someone who doesn't live in the dream world. Are we going to be left with an industry only composed of corporate and government farms because the mum and dad operators have been left financially and emotionally ruined? And what would our rural communities look like then? I think if you surveyed all of New Zealand farmers as to whether they thought it was a good idea to lead the climate change charge by being the first to implement new biotechnology, I can guarantee I know what the answer would be. And I'll just finish with this last point. I would like people to stand up for our industry and speak out because if nothing changes, then you can expect to see climate being classified as an invincible reason to do drastic and illogical things to ruin our economy, destroy capitalism and enslave us even further. Yeah, well, Helen, that's heartfelt and that's uh, a very strong message. Um, yeah, I, I'm grateful that you've taken the time to to formulate your ideas, express them today. Um, you've got family proud of you for what you're doing. Uh, I know that. And uh, the, the farmers in your area need to get alongside you and support you. It's certainly a, a problem, isn't there, when success for all the stuff that we've just talked about which means uh, if, if if the beef and lamb and the others had their way, no one can tell you what success looks like. No one. So all the stuff you've just said, I know um, you're very nervous about it and, and um, you put a lot of effort into it, but it resonates with so many people. What is success like? Why are we creating all this anxiety? Why are we putting all this tension inside the farm gate? It has no merit. So... Helen, we're just uh, in, indebted that you've taken the time to formulate your ideas, come on our show and present them. It takes courage. And um, I think, uh, I hope our listeners enjoy your, your passion. So um, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. And thank you, Don and Jasper, for everything that you're doing as well. Right back at you, Helen. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Jasper Eaton Don. And remember to give that feedback as you have been good at doing so far, listeners. Uh, that's text at 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, it's interesting. A, a week's a long time sometimes in social media worlds. And uh, you often find something that you least expect. And a week ago, I was given a link to a, uh, a page written by, or a site written by Snoopman. And I thought, what am I going to find here? And I found this document. It sort of links into the news about the BlackRock funds coming to New Zealand or the idea of some funding coming to New Zealand. And this gentleman had written this document, a big document that's available on social media called Decarbonisation Transition Therapy. World Premier Test Lab New Zealand pitched to pilot net zero carbon economy 
amid resource wars for 270 trillion global refit. And we thought, didn't we, Jasper? There's something to see here. So it seems like a bit of us. We'd better get and investigate who this is. So we happened upon a gentleman called Steve Snoopman Edwards. And he's been um, writing and, and he has a website called Snoopman News. It's turning 10 this week. And we've found that this article that he's penned last week, August the 10th, has had a heck of a lot of uptake. And so, look, without further ado, we're going to introduce Steve Snoopman Edwards. And we've got a bit of a bit of a CV, and we're not going to talk about it all, but um, one that uh, does highlight is that he graduated with first-class honours uh, in a Master's in Communication Studies uh, degree. So, you know, this guy's no slug. Um, welcome to Greenwash, Steve. Uh, we're going to call you Steve and Snoopman through this, but um, first up, Aside from welcoming you, what what's driven you to develop this um, this this page and this especially this article? That's probably the the main topic we're going to talk about. But what really was the uh, urgency to, to get this out? Hey, thanks, Don. Uh, yeah, thank you, Don um, and Jaspreet. Uh, thank you for the invite to your to your radio show. Um, my well, my my original um, you know impetus a little bit about me. My impetus for starting Snoopman News was to um, I, you know dive beneath you know the headlines and the you know the, the really the surface level that that the news and current affairs skims across. You know the kind of you know you know that they, they, they they're like surfers and they're also kind of like you know snorkelers. They just go a little bit below the surface. And so I, I try and dive deeper and spend spend more time. So my website and my and my you know Substack Snoopman Files pages you know um, account that it's more it's kind of halfway between a magazine article if you like and a or you know a news and that magazine article and, and an academic article. So you know it's got references and links and they're normally you know a bit longer as everyone keeps telling me. <laughs> yeah. So right. so with this with this BlackRock. Um, piece, you know, I saw that saw that news happen last week, and um, and with you know the New Zealand um, Climate Partnership Fund that that BlackRock's looking to be a broker for, and they're a massive um, asset management fund with you know depending on whose count you take, you know it's eleven trillion in in funds under management, or it's fifteen or sixteen trillion, you know, a huge transnational you know corporation, um, and so. I, I felt like it needed it needed a deeper piece to contextualize um, what that you know what that means for New Zealand and and also where where the world's going the trajectory it's on which is why I mentioned the you know the 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 figures being thrown around of anywhere between two hundred trillion and two hundred seventy trillion to you know remake the world on a sustainable trajectory by twenty fifty. And that was one of the figures mentioned, you know, and then the news of BlackRock and its climate partnership fund. Um, you know, one of the one of the BlackRock people, you know, mentioned that 200 trillions needed by 2050 to make the global economy net zero. And, and you know, and it's like the the figure should tell you that um, it will make all other, you know, um, you know the the three previous you know industrial revolutions you know look like I don't know like a 
a bunch of sheddies tinkering away, you know, in, in an international conference with their, you know, with their inventions. It's it's an, it's incredible, all right. Um, the the numbers just get plucked off trees, don't they? Uh, interestingly, we uh, talked about a um, carbon capture and storage concept in the states uh, that one senator picked on John Kerry's um, argument for for having such a, a concept, and he came up with the numbers at the current price of carbon, which we all sort of, I imagine have some view on whether it's valuable or valueless. Anyway, at the current price, uh, to do what John Kerry wanted to do was going to be $1.6 quadrillion. So those are numbers we've never even heard of in our lives. And in New Zealand, this net zero stuff, they're talking $42 billion in the um, transition by 2050 in the, in the documents. But Michael Kelly from Oxford last year wrote a paper for New Zealand, he said minimum cost 550 billion. So we've got a difference between 42 billion and 550 already. So I think your warning, Steve, was quite salutary that um, these numbers are just plucked from somewhere. Um, they haven't got a lot of substance and, uh, and, and we need to expose it. So, you know, I think the, the message already has been you, you've, your radar goes up when you see these numbers and you have to look in behind them. So what did you find? Well, the, 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 the $42 trillion, I mean, they're talking about that specifically for um, energy generation and distribution, mm. and, that, and that's by 2030, that particular figure. Mm. Um, but, you know, and, and in terms of, you know, what they're talking about spending for New Zealand by 2050, you know, you know, it, it, it may be, well be that 150, 500, you know, billion kind of range, um, just fairly, fairly ridiculous because what, I mean, my, why my radar goes up is because they're really, they're talking about a high tech, a high tech trajectory, um, you know, for the planet. And, um, and we're supposed to all believe that that's, you know, um, all about saving the environment and sustainable. And, you know, I, I would first, you know, put in, you know, like before I go any further, um, you know, I, I haven't really seen anyone, who, you know, who, who doesn't say that, the, you know, the planet isn't being plundered um, and that, you know, there aren't, you know, major environmental problems being caused by, you know, a huge amount of, you know, human activity. Um, a major among them is, um, you know, all these wars that have been, you know, going on for so long to grab resources and not pay people a fair price and involve, you know, countries that are, you know, been supplying these raw materials, you know, to rebuild Europe, rebuild Japan after World War II. You know, there was a developmentalist movement, um, you know, that, that sprung up after World War II, which is why Africa went through a whole bunch of revolutions to try and get their countries back from, you know, you know to decolonize. But all they found, you know, afterwards in the process was that um, they were uh, they, they, they were actually going through neocolonialism. You know that that yeah. the, the massive yeah. companies were still there, and the financial systems and the banking systems were still controlled. I mean, I've got a book on my bookshelf behind me, written by Kwame Nakumura, um, called um, uh, "Neocolonialism: The Last Stage of Imperialism." And he was a friend of John F. Kennedy, and um, you know that they, they met at Harvard Business School, and and you know um, Kwame had this vision for Africa, you know, to be 
um, you know, he worked out what countries had what resources and how they could all trade together and co-develop. And what they needed was Western technology, you know, to help them, you know, get started, which is where John F. Kennedy came in. You know, he helped fund, you know, using, you know, U.S. Congress to fade, you know, this West African, you know, hydroelectrics, hydro, hydropower electric scheme. And so, anyway, that's a bit of a tangent in going back. But a, it, what what it, what it gives you is that there were people, you know, back in the post-war world, post-World War Two, who were working out genuine solutions but all of this was blocked you know by the david rockefellers of this world and and then that that's how it, it, it's it gets into my bigger argument that i had running through it of like why i said you know this global refit amongst the you know uh, a you know an ongoing war and so one of the things that i mentioned in the article where i get to where it's you know where it blows out into this bigger picture is that the world's still in a third hundred years war, which began in 1899 as a, um, uh, you know, as an imperial plan to reforge the British Empire. And that began with the Boer War to um, gain gold and diamonds mm. for a war chest and diamonds, no doubt, because it's really, you know, it's a hard material and it's great for um, machine, you know, making machine, you know, using in machine cutting. And 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 so that third hundred years war, um, you know, I didn't just make that up out of my head. You know, I got that off. You know, this A class historian Carol Quigley, who you know wrote wrote um, well, he wrote three major books, and one of them was the Evolution of Civilizations, where he summarized, you know, what are the key things of of civilization, and one of them he pointed out was that every you know, an, a, a civilization turns into an empire when it becomes expansionist, and and he said every empire needs an instrument of expansion. In classical times, you know, that was slavery. Everyone knows about that. And and what happened, you know, at the turn of the century was, you know, these these geopolitical planners were looking at oil and seeing its enormous potential, and so that became the new instrument of expansion and why World War One happened. And World War Two, as we know, the maps changed between um, in the Middle East between World War One and World War Two, and so um, and so what's happened, um, you know, by you know eighteen fifty nine, uh, nineteen fifty nine rather, was the beginning of um, you know it was the first computer chip. I mean, I mean it was about the size of an oven, oven tray, um, and and so that was the beginning of of the um, you know the chip revolution. And so that is where the hundred wars year is, is turned. It's now a fight over the control for the resources, the territories, and the technologies to control the computing chip. And who controls the computing chip um, will dominate the world. And that's what the fight is over. You spoke about 1959, Steve. 1960s a year. That's in my head. I think this was a year that's called the Year of Africa, where more than a dozen African countries supposedly got their independence. And you spoke about the themes of neo-imperialism. And I, I took an interest in Africa because uh, both my dad and my brother, two two decades apart, they served under the United Nations peacekeeping forces from the Indian Army deputed. So. Uh, Congo received its independence from Belgium, middle of 1960. By December 1960, UN boots were on the ground before Christmas of that year. 
what is it, 63 years later, the average Congolese still has a life expectancy less than 60. They're, the food basket of Africa, so-called, is destroyed. And that was in Somalia in 92 to 94 as a lieutenant colonel. And my brother was in Congo 2005 for about roughly 14 months deputation. And uh, so Somalia always sort of captures my attention. And I saw this year, January, the U.S. military has presented $9 million in weapons, vehicles, anti-aircraft guns, and other equipment to the Somali National Army in a ceremony attended by the U.S. ambassador. So you can just see what's going on in Africa. You can just see how all of these themes have been repeated. And as you said, the, the wars never really ended and colonialism turned to neo-imperialism and so on. But why, coming back to your article, most people think it's a great thing that BlackRock is coming in and they'll be bringing the money. Our tax take is not going to be used to transition us to a net zero economy. So what's wrong with BlackRock? That's It begs the question there. Why should we be worried, if at all? Well, BlackRock's, BlackRock is a, you know, it's this transnational um, investment, you know, huge conglomerate. Um, it, it, it basically, you know, I mean, without seeing, you know, the actual contract, you know, because that's confidential and we haven't seen it. Um, the, the the point is, is that uh, it, it it's financing, you know, it's foreign and it's and it's and it's you know probably also local financing for high tech solutions um, that are, you know, going going to. Um, but basically, the, the 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 key problem with um, all these you know computer you know chip based solutions that come with everything is that it's it's not only your power supply. But without even asking the power company, they're actually, you know, working as the surveillance company. They're grabbing all your data via, you know, the Wi-Fi signals through your smart meters and when whatever else, you know, if it's like using a card or your phone to interact with that service, you know, because everyone's got, you know, phones and we've helped, we've actually helped through, you know, um, how, how, the, how the, you know, the economy has been transformed. We're all... Um, keying into things with our phones, but either paying for them um, or, you know, and, and then that's what's going to be more um, more introduced with each of these systems. It won't be just a chipped card. It'll be more direct transactions with your phones, which is what they were trialing and getting everyone used to during COVID with QR codes. It was basically a, it was a test for humanity and we failed at, at an intelligence test where we just complied mass scale and and like monkeys, you know, pointed, you know, our mobiles at QR codes to get access to things, um, you know. And so th that's, you know, that's where we're going. And yet, and, yet, and yet you notice like with a big program like that, you know, like I call it the great Corona, you know, hostage crisis, mm. the likes of BlackRock, you know, these big CEOs, you know, they, you know, there was no howls from any of them, you know, these, yeah. these big companies, you know, to close down whole sectors of economies, you know, I mean, if that was Greta Thunberg going, close it down for climate, you know, everyone would have just laughed her, laughed her out of the room, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, but this, this was a very strategically, you know, planned, um, you know, operation, you know, 
and and it was it was BlackRock who wrote this this paper called Going Direct, you know, back in nine, 2019, and it was tabled at Jackson Hole, and that was a plan literally um, to bail out, you know, um, bail out the country, bail out the bankers, and bail out big corporates, um, and you know, expand the money supply. Mm. And of course, then a crisis comes along, and you know, hey presto, you know, BlackRock's managing the funds for that bailout distribution on behalf of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. You know, which, which, as I point out in my article, the Federal Reserve is privately owned. It's a cartel. It's got a money monopoly, and you know, it's it's um, founding banks in the New York branch. You know, it's got twelve branches, twelve regional banks. You know, in a th- you know the th- the 13th district, like in the Hunger Games, is in Washington D.C., where the <laughs> board of governors are. You know, so I mean, you literally, if you go to the board of governors website and you look at the structure of the Federal Reserve, it like literally reads like the rule book for a game of Monopoly. You know, where the bankers always win in the end, and they get your collateral amongst a financial crash. So, so if I if I could just finish that point on on um, BlackRock and its association with um, the Federal Reserve, you know, and it, it was one of five, um, they called them vendors during the 2008, you know, whole bailout season. And okay. and so it was one of five, you know, financial companies that were managing the bailouts and where all that bailout money went. And at the time, BlackRock's assets were $300 billion. And now it's eleven trillion under management, or fifteen or sixteen, depending on whose count you take. So, I, I, what, what I'm, what I'm driving at is behind BlackRock. You know, we know that State Street and Vanguard are also, you know, top owners in BlackRock. Behind them, you know, we can't quite see, but you know, you can kind of read between the lines. If the Federal Reserve is privately owned by dynastic banking families and the global banks. Um, you know, you know, then then the big owners or the big investors in BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard are going to be the dynastic banking families and the industrialists, and um, and the big tech, um, you know, multi-billionaires, you know, centre billionaires, you know. And so 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 my 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 problem with the the BlackRock Climate Partnership Fund gets to the issue of New Zealand has, like so many countries around the world, a debt-based monetary system, and we don't have a government that actually um, uses a sovereign power that it could do and actually produce the money that the country needs in its own currency, debt-free, so that um, otherwise everyone is competing to pay back loans, to pay taxes on foreign debt, and um, and that's 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 where we are. There's literally a scarcity over actual cash. Cash is debt free if you produce it that way, and and it's not just about the, you know the fact that there's ATMs and lots of digital money. The problem was there even before you know electronic money came along. It's the fact that. But the global banking cartel keeps an actual scarcity over cash mm. in the same way that, you know, other cartels keep a scarcity over supply of, you know, diamonds to keep the prices up or oil, you know, to, um, you know, create 
create a high price for oil by having everyone believe that it was dinosaurs that somehow, you know, died on mass, you know, two miles below the surface of the earth. <laughs> So, listeners, I just want to put into context some of the numbers that uh, Steve's been talking about. I did some research, and uh, in 1988 was when um, Larry Fink first set up BlackRock. And um, remember, uh, Steve has just talked about the GFC of 2008-9 when the banks, uh, the five big banks, sort of, I think, collapsed. Uh, Freddie May, uh, was it? Freddie May, or no, oh, I've forgotten, Fannie Mae and Freddie May, that's right. And... Um, by 2011, um, I mean, Steve just talked about how there were not even a trillion dollars worth of assets around pre-GFC, but at the end of the GFC, uh, uh, BlackRock had under its management $3.5 and today now has $12 trillion. Uh, So each crisis has built their base quite nicely, I'd suggest. Now, Steve, I'd just like to posit this, though. We've got a, a super and fund in New Zealand. Who owns that? Who really owns it then, based on what you're just saying? Uh, effectively, um, I would have thought, why didn't we use our own super and fund to have um, look after our own country first, uh, use our own funding from mums and dads' investments to build the roads? And have, if we have to have a, a climate fund, which I suggest we don't, um, but if we do, it's all there. Is that relevant? Or do we not even own our own super fund? Well, I, I I don't I don't know much about the super funds. Um, I, I I gather that BlackRock manages that as well. That's my understanding. Um, but I you know I wouldn't be surprised if some of that money gets redirected into you know investing in in the climate you know um, partnership fund. Um, yeah, I mean, we, 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 I think people need to realise this this climate climate partnership fund. You know, it's the New Zealand version of it. Um, it was, you know, first announced in September 2018 by Larry Fink and uh, President um, Macron, and um, and you know, so and at the time they were talking about 100 trillion needed to make you know the world sustainable and net zero by 2050. Um, price tags gone up, uh, doubled, um, <laughs> along with the uh, you know the inflation of the money supply of the world. Um, so, uh, the, the, the thing, the thing about, um, you know, Larry, Larry Fink and, you know, BlackRock, um, yeah, I, I, the, 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 the other problem with BlackRock, you know, being put in charge of, you know, managing brokering funds, you know, he, Larry Fink's at the floor, fourth, forefront of, um, you know, promoting ESGs, which is, you know, environmental, um, uh, sorry, sorry, equity and sustainability goals, which is the corporate version of, you know, uh, you know, social credit, credit cre- so, social credit scoring system. You know mm. that that like they've got in China. You know that's, you know, gonna come to the West. You know because, you know, so it's the corporate version of that where they're forcing through a whole lot of, you know. Um, scoring system so you know companies are having to do reports to show that they've you know got you know equity on their boards and the like but what all of that is it's a distraction from the fact that you know um who are the richest people on the planet mm-hmm. you know and it, and it's not it's not elon musk you know or, or um 
you know, Jeff Bezos and, and Bill Gates, they're second tier. You know, it would be too embarrassing for, you know, Fortune magazine to publish a 400 rich list of the world's richest because everyone would go, holy shit, it's, you know, pardon my French, um, it's, it's you know, um, the Saudi royal family, it's the British royal family, it's the Dutch royal family, and it's the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and, and a whole lot of other, you know, dynastic banking families like, you know, the Swedish Wallenberg family and, you know, Vanderbilt's and the like. My problem with all of this, Steve, is I don't care if someone is rich, you know. If they weren't the riches, they could stay there. But my problem is the social credit system which is coming in via ESG. My problem is also that no one is asking me as an individual what my priorities are. My priorities are affordable food, roads which actually need a walk instead of my vehicle needing a walk, a decent education, a hospital system where I don't have to wait for a second time, I hope, in my life for 48 hours in ER to have my child with a broken arm seen. We seem to have no money for all of this. And yet we've decided the climate and climate change and all of this is where we are going to be spending our money. Tell you what, I will actually go as far enough to venture that I don't care what the future looks like if my children don't have a present. I don't care what happens 50 years from now. If my child, God forbid, tomorrow something serious happens and they suffer major uh, side effects of not being able to see a doctor soon or people having to have, you know, junk food and crap because they can't afford healthy, uh, fresh produce, news and lamb, milk, butter, all of that stuff. So we've got our priorities really screwed and we seem to have an army of bureaucrats who are hell-bent upon pushing this stuff down our throat, be it ESG be it the DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion, nonsense. And we are people who absolutely do not see that there is techno-feudalism right now. We are being controlled by these, I, I often call them the tech overlords. We are being controlled and herded into a direction which none of us chose. How long can you keep pushing sustainability for future generations right down if you don't have a present left anymore? Well, Exactly. But, um, you know, that's what history teaches us as well. Uh, and that's what this whole discussion's about, um, learning from history, seeing what's in front of us now, and imagine what they're going to write in the next 50 years, provided it's not censored, um, about today. Uh, Steve's highlighting stuff that, you know, had we had eyes wide open, most of us would know this stuff, but most of us don't because we're too busy um, doing what you're doing, Jasper, trying to protect your family, which is what we should all do. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, uh, Steve, how the game of Monopoly is is being played out. As, uh, in, one, in your article, you even use the Monopoly box uh, as, a, as a picture. But 2011, Larry Fink said it pretty well, didn't he, uh, his intention, um, that markets like totalitarian governments mm. um, because that actually helps them. So would you just like to expand a little bit on that, uh, if you can? Sure, sure, yeah. So he was he was talking, it was in a Bloomberg interview where Larry Fink, um, you know, was asked, you know, what do you think about all the uprisings, you know, going on around the world and chaos and all of that. And, um, you know, civil unrest and things that were post, post-global financial crisis and, and people wanting uh, freedom in, in, in some of those totalitarian, you know, kind of dictatorship countries, you know, in the Middle East, um, that the West has helped build up. 
<laughs> um, and 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 he said, you know, his answer was, well, you see confusion and that markets, you know, um, like, you know, totalitarian governments um, because it, you know, gives, gives them certainty. certainty. Mm. Yeah, and, and their investments. And so I, I wrote in the article, you know, markets as code for oligarchs. Um, and so, that I mean, the thing about oligarchs, you know, they're, they're super rich people and, you know, they'll form a coalition, so that's an oligarchy. And if you leave them to their own devices for long enough, um, they will form empires. And, and so that's what the world is seeing is that, you know, over the past – you know, 150 years, the, the the those existing empires have transformed themselves and made alliances with, you know, and and really developed the corporation and created cartels around the world. And it's a fusion of that working with military intelligence complexes. And, um, you know, and, and they've gotten so powerful that literally their business plans don't work unless the military goes in and takes more resources and territories for them. And that's where we're at. They have such, you know, rapacious need as coalitions of oligarchs to accumulate better than average because if they don't, capital will go to where it can. And oh. so that's what you've got going on. And and so, you know, there's there's one book I quote, you know, that I, you know, source in my article, Capital is Power. And that's by, you know, a couple of, you know, political economists who really have their head around it. And they've actually um, you know, there's a whole subfield that they've, um, you know, forged of people contributing to this capitalist power theory. And what that talks about is, is that what matters to super rich oligarchs is how they can transform their economic wealth into political power. And that, that is, that is the key to why, you know, um, we don't have, you know, our vote, you know, is, is like, you know, it's basically, you know, taken, it's manufactured, the consent of our vote, you know, is, you know, it, it, it's, we're completely manipulated. And, and because there's mass populations, most people don't realize how deep and how far all of this planning goes. Um, that, you know, really, we're, as, as, as democracies, we're being played, and, and it's actually transforming into technocracies, where, you know, the governance systems are transforming into systems where they're, they're um, being governed by bureaucrats that have turned into technocrats hmm. and with scientists and technicians and engineers all working enthusiastically as alliances. You know, you've got the New Zealand Tech Alliance and all the members there, and they're all working enthusiastically and getting paid, thinking they're actually doing good for the world, most of them, I'm sure. Um but what's happening is we're actually creating a shiny, you know, well-marketed technocratic totalitarian system for the West. And the chi China's being used as the, you know, the, 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 the test facility for totalitarianism. Um, you know, but of course they can't quite do it the way the CCP does it, you know, by just getting on and doing it, which is what Larry Fink was alluding to because Larry yeah, Fink, West. well, not. But yeah, it still needs Let, to sort of maintain a mediocre of oh, we are being kind, we are being inclusive, we are you know consulting. I don't know how many times I've heard the word consultation, but the and ultimately these organizations or these whatever you call these massive you know super global super rich corporations they are not accountable. 
they were not elected. And who will be left, uh, you know, holding the fallout? It will be Kiwis. Yeah, yeah. And and so that, that gets to the, you know, another point I was making in, in the article was that, um, you know, what what happens periodically is that when, um, you know, when, when mass populations have, have accumulated too much wealth themselves, you know, through, you know, industriously working, inventing and, and having their own medium and small size businesses and the like, and, you know, working hard and striving, um, these coalitions of oligarchs, they literally pull um, strategic sabotages of industry and that and they'll pull a reset. And that's what we saw in 2020. Um, and, and, you know, if people might go, you know, if they don't, you know, if they haven't quite got their head around, you know, why it is that a pandemic, you know, supposedly um, doesn't justify shutting down entire economies, you know, and, and entire societies, you could, for a fraction of the price and resources, have, you know, targeted healthcare for the health vulnerable. And and it all would have been fine. I mean, my grandparents would have just like been aghast. Their jaws would have dropped to the floor, you know, like that. You know, whole countries were being shut down. They would have just, you know, you know, because they were old enough to have lived through the, you know, um, nineteen eighteen, you know, pandemic. Um, and anyway, you know, because they lived through the Great Depression, so they they knew what it is to crash economies and and the hardship that causes and you know you shorten people's lifespans by compromising their ability to you know have decent nutrition um so you know to, to give an historical example that that more people can get their heads around of, of of the oligarchs pulling a reset um you know it was kissinger who plotted the yom kippur war in 1973 by you know um getting the Israelis, the Egyptians, and the Syrians to misunderstand each other's agendas. And, you know, the Dark Prince himself played them all off. And the, and the reason why, you know, they pulled that was, you know, to knowing the Arabs would, you know, be angry at American support of Israel and with military um, support. And and so, you know, the oil embargo happened. And, and so then that, you know, pushed up and caused the oil price shocks, supposedly. But it was all pre-planned, and and you know there was still oil getting imported through um, Rotterdam, you know, to Europe, um, and you know five months before that occurred, that Yom Kippur War was triggered. That's the trigger. There's always a trigger and a reset. Um, the, five months before, the Bilderberg Group were discussing, you know, what would happen, and if if the price of oil went from two dollars fifty to ten dollars, which subsequently uh-huh. happened. Um, you know, and that was that was at an island in in Sweden owned by the Wallenberg um, banking dynasty. You know, and, and present at that that meeting was um, you know Giovanni, you know the Fiat family. Um, there was uh, you know Nathan Rothschild, uh, um, Nathan L. Rothschild, and you know a whole a whole bunch of key players. Um, you know, dis- discussing that, and and you know the, that was the beginning of. The, that was their petrodollar plan. Mm. And, you know, it got flushed through, you know, Rockefeller's, you know, Manhattan Bank and, um, you know, which was, was a big owner in the Federal Reserve before it merged with J.P. Morgan Chase in, um, you know, 2000. Um, 
and so the whole that whole plan was to reinvigorate the US dollar um, because it had run up, you know, huge huge debts, you know, huge fiscal deficits during the Vietnam War, and you know the French had actually sent a warship, you know, to into New York Harbor and to New Jersey to um, reclaim their gold, and in 1971, and that triggered, you know. They basically had to go back to the drawing board, and they got Nixon to take, you know, um, the dollar off the gold standard. And so then they spent two years figuring out how they were going to reinvigorate the U.S. dollar. And so that was the petrodollars, get the world to, you know, um, trade, you know, keep trading in oil, and but flush it through, you know, all these private banks that, you know, and um and but the other side of that was to actually build up client states and get them to buy U.S. military weapons. So with the with the increased you know um, oil oil um, you know petrodollars flushing you know through through their own banks and through their own accounts as well. So and and so then then that's where you really see the U.S. really enforcing you know every country has to trade in in the U.S. dollars. But um, now they don't seem to I mean even go through all of these. And I must admire your grasp of history. And you know I have a fleeting sense of much of this. I know, you know, growing up with the background of uh, the Iraq war and then the constant chatter of weapons of mass destruction and all of that coming to naught. When I've seen this play out, but I've never ever heard anyone put it into a whole coherent picture like you have. But now they don't even try anything like that, Steve, is it? You just claim that carbon or carbon dioxide, depending on what terminology people use, just uh, paint it as the enemy. And that's it. Job done. I mean, who would have thought it could be as simple as that? And people have forgotten second grade science. My kids could tell you, my eight-year-old could tell you that carbon dioxide is needed for life. But it seems uh, all of our expert researchers cannot. I mean, is it brilliant or what? I, I have a grudging admiration for this whole plan right now as I'm seeing it unfold. I mean, much as I don't want to, there is a grudging admiration for, I mean, the simplicity of the plan, the stupidity of mankind, and just a sheer unwillingness to think for ourselves. How did humanity ever get here? You know? Yeah, it's 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 quite a it's quite a jig. It's quite a gaslighting operation. Um, you know, to get get people to, you know, go along with an idea that we need to reduce, you know, um, you know, CO two, you know, in the atmosphere and, you know, Bill Gates and a whole lot of others, you know, um, advocating, you know, you know, CO2 sequestering, um, you know, industrial plants, you know, and it's like, oh my God, you're, you're actually talking about, you know, sucking, sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and, and, you know, you could put it in a bumper sticker, literally, <laughs> you know, CO, CO2 is best friends with trees, you know? Yep. And, and so, so the madness of, of, of you know of, of of that, and so therefore it raises the question: why why out of all the all the you know gases, which you know it's under one percent you know CO two um, of of atmospheric gas, um, why why out of all of them has it been you know um, scapegoated? And the reason for it is that um, that they can then. You know, because they've they've set that in everyone's mind um, that CO two is bad. It's the boogeyman, and and so what that gets to is 
this carbon equivalence system that they've developed, you know, and they've got everyone, you know, going, we need to decarbonize the planet. And carbon's in, you know, probably practically everything. It's in every living thing um, as an atom. And so um, what that what that gets to is, and again, then this relates to Larry Fink because his specialty is derivatives. Um, you know, he knows how to slice and dice assets and and um, make make fortunes off it with his, you know, Ali. Well, what is it? The, the um, his quantum computer. Um, yeah, and and Aladdin. Um, Aladdin. And you know, and and so he the the carbon equivalence is is you know at, so there's this term the carbon equivalence unit and so what what that's about is it's about um quantifying with algorithms um every every single product in the world that's manufactured um and every resource and every asset into a carbon equivalence you know unit amount so we and, are going from a gold back to a petrodollar to a carbon unit yeah Economic yeah, units. yes, yes. That 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 is. Yeah, you've got it. That's it's mm. the underlying, you know, asset, you know, kind of, you know, thing. Um, and so it it, it and so so you need you need the computing chip. You know, mm. you need to control a computing chip to and have have the best and the fastest, you know, system that can control all of that enormous computation and and also. Um, you know the control of resources and territories and technologies, and so so what the carbon equivalence unit does is it's all about tracking, um, you know, from mining through to you know consumption, who consumes what, and all the way through to you know it being recycled or thrown in a city dump or you know whatever, and tracked all along the way. So that Popular is about economy. <laughs> yeah yeah they, they make they make it just sound so sound you know, so yeah so yeah. yeah you know even your child can draw that you know draw a circle <laughs> jimmy um yeah and so um and so, so it's about tracking every single resource so it's total surveillance we're talking about a total surveillance system you know that would you know it would have literally have made you know you know the you know trotsky and stalin and you know hitler and you know um chairman mao and all of that you know they all would have you know just been so excited and just beside themselves if they had that enormous power that's the problem i have with the likes of larry fink <laughs> i mean even his name you know fink you know to, to think on someone you know to snitch on someone you know he's literally part of a massive machine so um you know it's a massive snitching machine yeah well and, um, and steve, so I, steve I felt i steve i was just gonna say you have you must follow a little bit about what's happening to new zealand farmers who have leadership willing to sell into a system that would have them know their number so they would know the emissions from each cow or each sheep or from the fertilizer they put on their their crops <laughs> and then it was going to be traceable uh you know to the to the consumer everything would be traceable and there's only a few of us have seen the woods for the trees realizing that this is a big game that you don't want to be part of but we've got leaders in our farm co-ops and our farm um businesses all selling into this They've all been captured by ESGs, SDGs, you name it. They've all been caught up in it. And 
you know, you've simplified it pretty easily. The carbon <laughs> unit, uh, gosh, I don't know. I, I didn't I mean, even have it that simple. Even carbon units, John, I mean, these are the same people because even if I, for a second, say, all right, I agree with the argument, carbon is going to destroy at 409 parts per million. It's going to absolutely destroy life as we know it. These people say within the, uh, you know, industry groups, farming groups, they say, oh, we can't give you any credit for the sequestration of carbon by your grass. But at the same time, you can do massive experiments at millions of dollars to find out how much are your sheep, you know, belching all of this methane, nitrous oxide. We can put your sheep in special chambers and we monitor them 24-7, but we can't tell you how much carbon is being sequestered by your grass. Can't give you credits for that. It's just too complicated. Seriously? And then we have, as Jacinda Ardern said in 2017, we'll be the first country in the world to put United Nations Sustainable Development Goals into our very legislation. And boy, are we delivering that on a platter to the globalists at the UN and whosoever else is behind that. Why do you think, see, we as a country are so willing to be lab rats, you know, world first climate uh, change bills. One of the first, I think, if not the very first where uh, FPOS cards were rolled out one of the first, again, to put on these modern slavery laws and trying to get all, even people like me and my husband, we have a few people on work visas, we sign modern slavery declarations to get our employees to start visas. And I, God almighty, I'm a migrant myself. You are telling us all of this. Why are we so willing as a country to go where angels fear to tread? Why do we want to be world first in everything? I think some of it's to do with being like a small country at the bottom of the world, um, depending mm -hmm. on which way you're standing, um, <laughs> or, the, or the world maps orientated. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that's part of it, you know, it's like, you know, being, being proud, you know, um, I think we get milked, you know, we get milked by, you know, the overlords, they know how to play New Zealanders that way. Um, and and so, you know, one of the things I mentioned in, in the first subsection of my article was that we've, um, you know, we've long been used as a test facility. Um, and, you know, so, so I, I reference an article from The Economist from 2015 where they, you know, the, the title of that is Kiwis as Guinea Pigs. And, you know, one of the things that the... Um, you know, so, so that in that article, they're talking about how we're, you know, used a lot for, um, you know, testing new technologies and tweaking it and, and the like. And then the use of that is that um, we're a small, you know, population of 5 million. We're isolated down at the bottom of the world and um, English speaking and, um, and we, you know, take up, you know, new technology and, and the like, you know. And so... But one of the things they point out at the end is that it's not useful for the scientists, for you know the um, for the guinea pigs to know that they're in an experiment. And so, um, even though New Zealand constantly gets used as you know for pilot studies for this and that, you know that the media is so um, episodic, you know that they don't put together the patterns over time. And so, like you know, you'll see kids like going. Why are we like, you know, blah, blah, blah with our exams? You know, they're being used in a pilot study and they don't realize that, that you know, once again, you know, Kiwis are being used as, as you know, test subjects for um, not just for New Zealand, but for the world. And uh, that's how we get manipulated. And and so so what they can do 
you know, what's being done with, you know, testing out in New Zealand, like with, you know, BlackRock and its Climate Partnership Fund, is they're tweaking how they're going to do it before they roll it out, you know, bigger and bigger countries where they'd get more flack if they made, you know, some pretty basic mistakes. Yeah. And so it's so yeah. it's it's also about massaging the message, and then and tweaking tweaking and technology updates. Yeah, tweaking the technology updates, but also tweaking the um, the relationships between you know the, getting the brokerage, getting the contracts done, what works well, you know, b- between different stakeholders, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and you know, like I. You know, I mean, that gets to like the Rand Corporation, you know, with it developing, you know, during the Cold War, um, you know, that that Delphi method, you know, and they've got that down to a fine art now, you know, of like how to how to um, do consensus shaping meetings, um, you know, with stakeholders when they've already got their objective and they just need to smooth out the process before they roll it out big on an economy. You know, or on a you know a whole country or an industry or whatever, and th- and that's going on all the time. You know, and so, um, yeah, yeah. Pe- pe- people don't people don't realize the the extent at which, um, you know, there's there's a whole swag of you know PR companies, political strategy, you know, firms, law firms, accountancy firms, um, you know, you know, think tanks. So before anything becomes the news and the news, you know, it's, it's long being worked on and there's, you know, it's, it's lit. So in a country like this, you know, it's small enough. There's, you know, two degrees of separation at the most, you know, I'm sure amongst, um, you know, the listenership of, you know, reality check radio, um, they'll have people in their families or their friends who have been working on different parts of this. Yeah. And what we need is you know people who are you know willing to um you know grow up here and you know get the documents put it on a thumb drive and whistleblow and and do so in a, in a way that you know with a cover letter that explains what the different documents mean and how it all goes together and what they've seen we need people to be you know small ballsy um yeah. otherwise we're going to lose this country and 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 what's what's a value of you know people go oh but we're just a small country what can we do and what does it matter you know literally let me remind you we're being used as a test facility um, so the you know the, the 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 what that tells you as well in the story is that we actually have because we get used as an influence multiplier out to the world mm-hmm. you know um, all the time oh New Zealand's gone that way and that's such a you know corruption free country. You know? Place is literally riddled with snakes. Um, you know, we're not a snake-free country. I, and I so, add a couple of things here. I am so used to seeing free, uh, Transparency International ratings coming in frequently. And the other day, I just looked up. So, who's the country director of Transparency International? It's Antoli. Now, ex-minister Antoli, who was also a commissioner of Taronga, which has mm-hmm. not had local body elections now for is it two terms. So there is no transparency there. Some of these things are absolutely galling to me. But I, yeah. I, I want to go back to about a year ago, last year, and this is just uh, 15 months ago, May the 5th, 2022. You wrote an article, Steve, on your website, snoopman.net.nz, spy my media. You said Pfizer's top owners 
BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street are also top shareholders of the parent companies that own Analect. And Analect was hired by our government, New Zealand government, to spy on our social media. This is so insidious, isn't it? Incestuous, insidious, whatever term you use. It is, we just seem to be going back to the same places time and again. Yeah, yeah, it it, it runs deep, the, um, the entwinedness of, uh, that's a terrible entwinedness the entangled you know the, the entangled um nature of it all yeah blackrock vanguard and state street um you know you know that they're literally a giant squid um you know or three giant squids um you know yeah and 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 you know the the top they were the top three owners you know during the pandemic of um became the top ultimate owners in a way of um you know news hub because uh, news hub is owned by discovery which is owned by at&t you know which is one of the big um six media conglomerates in the states you know this there's, there's six huge um you know media media corporations that are a cartel you know that each 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 own a hollywood studio and each own a um each own news outlets as well as all the entertainment and and all of that and so that's how that's how the population is um you know its consent is manufactured you know mm-hmm. there's a documentary called manufacturing consent that your listeners can watch made in 1992 still relevant you know and literally shows how the empire manufactures the consent of the population through control of the media and um you know but, but basically because the media is so huge and and there's there's five filters five dominant filters on the news, you know, to do with the, the, the size and ownership of a media corporation. Um, it's, it's advertising, um, the official sources. So that's third filter sourcing, um, where, you know, your officials are presumed to be accurate. Mm, mm, <laughs> um, mm, mm. and then, uh, the, the, the fourth one is, you know, your, your, your think tanks. So, you know, your flack filter providing yeah. flack. And, and then your fifth filter, you know, which is a big one is, is ideology. And you know, so if you can get if you can get a population to believe, buy into know, it, yeah. Then you know the climate cult or the Corona cult, or you know get it to believe in, um, you know, communism. You know, is bad. You know, and I'm not saying it's great either. But you know, this this is the Hegelian dialectic that I mentioned in the article is that mm. you, know, you literally create an ideology, you know, mm. communism um and and you get it and you get whole populations to fight against capitalism but you know as i as i mentioned in the article you know it was wall street bankers and and you know london interests and and um you know german war war warburg you know banking family along with you know those governments that you know backed the um bolshevik revolution because they wanted to gain control of um you know this soviet you know create a soviet russia um retarded so it was actually quite industrious you know doing quite nicely itself had a lot of free enterprise um and 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 they 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 um sabotaged its industrial development and then got in there and um you know and build these huge you know industrial combines you know western western companies you're just and putting so, so, into words the same thing we keep saying 
follow the money. You said right towards follow the money. Yeah. You you said uh, that Steve that people you know we keep thinking about Bill Gates and the others being really rich, but you're not really following the money. The BlackRock firm it also has a think tank and institute, BlackRock Investment Institute, in October 29, as a part of the Suez Forum, which is the European Money and Finance Forum. They issued a policy paper. This was just three to four months before COVID hit, saying that dealing with the next downturn from unconventional unconventional monetary policy to unprecedented policy coordination. And this was written by, amongst others, uh, Philip Heidelbrand, who has been the manager of uh, this institute, as well as an ex-Swiss banker, also the chairman of uh, the governor, the Swiss governor of the International Monetary Fund, all of these people knew this about four to five months ago, what is going to happen. And what we've seen in the last three years, as I, a layperson, see it, has been the biggest wealth transfer in history. All around me, where I look, and I live in the backwaters of rural Southland, there's hardship, there is misery, there is stress, there is family issues there's you know literally the social fabric the fabric is tearing apart and meanwhile they want us to go on a decarbonization journey well up there as i say pardon the french yeah yeah these um i'll have to read that uh paper yeah. thank you for pointing that out um like I, I i i wrote a i wrote a series called um the corona world games corona world games um there's three parts and um, in the in the first part, I, you know, I, I, you know, subtitle was you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, I could probably write in Larry Fink in there and have the seven <laughs> horsemen. Um, and you know, one of them was you know J.P. Morgan. You know, um, and you know, showing how on the eleventh anniversary, um, uh, you know, of Lehman Brothers collapse, which you know. JP Morgan orchestrated, they orchestrated the collapse of the um Bear Stearns as well. Um, the 11th anniversary of of the um Hank Pilson and and uh, Ben Bernanke going to Congress, you know, for the $700 billion bailout bill. That was Thursday, the 18th of September 2008. And on um September 18th, uh, 2019, so the 11th anniversary, um the New York Fed um, bailed out the, uh, the 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 repo market in um, in New York. Now the repo market is is an, an interbank um, overnight lending market, market that yeah. helps helps keep um, big companies you know pay their payroll, pay their bills, you know, yeah. and yeah. suppliers and all of that. And and the um, JP Morgan, the point is, is JP Morgan and three other banks were behind um, a spike in the interest rate, you know, the lending rate for that market, um, which went from 2% to 10%, which is obviously huge. And um, and then then the Fed, the New York Fed steps in to rescue that market. There was a repeat of the playbook in 2008, you know, like that market went haywire the week that um, that you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed and 400 billion in funds, you know, exited that market. So wh wh why I mention that is because this is how they do their resets. That was the real reset um, trigger mm -hmm. for the pandemic. They needed um, 
you know, I say pandemic with that rabbit is, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that people didn't die and get sick and that, but I'm, I'm saying that there was a lot of engineering behind it. Um, so they needed that, um, they needed a, a change in what had happened to undo the clamps that have been put down on the financial system for 10 years and just, you know, have the federal reserve open the spigots for money creation, um, like on a scale we've never seen. And, you know, so, you know, literally the public debt in the United States went from, you know, that September 18, 2019, when, when the New York fed, you know, stepped in to rescue that repo market, um, public debt was 22 trillion. And by the end of the pandemic, it was, you know, 30 trillion, you know, it increased 8 trillion in in a matter of you know less than three years right um or you know by the end of 2022 roughly so you know approximately three years to give you an idea of how huge that is when george bush came in you know before before you know they went on the second iraq war you know ventures um the u.s public debt was five trillion that's going all the way back to 1789 when the u.s congress was formed so it took all those years for the u.s debt to get to five trillion matter of three years during the pandemic they increased the public debt by eight trillion all of that federal credit creation went to the biggest companies the biggest banks the super rich get that uh that cheap credit you know like of 0.1 of a percent and and they buy up the fallen which is what happened when you close an economy you know they buy up all the fallen businesses you know, and, and buy up the hard assets of, you know, railroads to a mine or, you know, buy up, you know, who knows, the, you know, some precinct in Minneapolis that's got set on fire, um, the whole thing, you know. So, so you know, so, so what I'm driving at is that anything um, that the, you know, the global elites are telling us to go along with, do the opposite. <laughs> go yes, go they- back to the drawing board you know, get talking with your kids and go, how do we, how do we reinvent our lives so that our, you know, our communities are safe, our households have resilience and, um, and our businesses can, you know, ride out the next, um, the next reset. Well, look, Steve, that's uh, probably a great, um, question to pose at the end of the interview we've had an hour of your time i've got a whole page i've done more research on this column than i've probably done in the last five months and i'm not even halfway through uh i the last question i would like to ask though because i do want to take a bit of license here jasper she's telling me to wind up um is why why won't new zealand politicians (laughs) of any ilk recognize what's going on right in front of us today why won't they make sure our competition rules are right uh why won't they talk about sovereignty as being vital individual sovereignty uh there's a whole lot of whys third third uh, point uh is why do we hear about these non-profits that are so virtuous um when when clearly non-profit doesn't make sense So there's a whole lot of questions that I've got in my head, but I think we're going to have to wait for next time to have you um, back. And when we have you back, Steve, um, you've got a a depth of knowledge that is 
got to be released to to people. And I think if we can have you back and on this forum and we have part two, um, we'd be honored to have that uh, that opportunity. So um, yeah, like I said, we've had 60 minutes of your time and uh, we're very happy to have had that. Uh, all the best for your next works and your release of your podcasts in November. But in the interim, can I just thank you on behalf of Jasper Eaton and I and our listeners for your candid discussion today, and we'll be back after the break. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed. This is Jaspreet and Jill Booth is back in the house. Hey, Jill. Hi, Jaspreet. How's it going? Well, well, looking at the fortunes of farming, it could have been going a whole lot better, but hey, could have been going but, a whole lot worse, as my mum always says. Well, that that's true. But, you know, is your government looking after your health and well-being, Jasper? How's your <laughs> mental health going? <laughs> well, that's that's a very, that's a perfect segue, Jill, into <laughs> SDG3 today, which is the United Nations Sustainable Goal number three out of 17, good health and well-being, which they elaborate as to ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. How noble. Well, I didn't actually think that was noble. It strikes fear into into the bottom of my heart, really. Um, you know, so this is standardised, centralised and globalised well-being, which I actually couldn't think of anything worse than the government looking after my health. I know. And isn't it amazing that uh, our Director General or ex-Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, has now gone as the co-chair of the World Health Organization's, uh, you know, the International Health Treaty? Yes. Yes. And did you see that he's also Dr. Sir, Dr. <laughs> Ashley Bloomfield, um, is also giving a talk in Parliament. It's open for everybody. To, we've got to pay to go. But... Um, 28th of September on advancing um, Agenda 2030. Imagine that, eh, in our parliament. That's scary. <laughs> That's interesting times to be alive in. But now, getting back to the brief here, listeners, thank you so much for bearing with us today. Jill and I will go back and refer to the People's Report, or more specifically, the People's Report on the 2030 Agenda and Sustainable Development Goals, which our government quaintly calls an alternate report for Aotearoa, New Zealand, 2019. It is available on the web if you just look for the People's Report, United Nations, NZ. And we've referred to this in the past. If you are looking for the website, that is www.sdg.org.nz. And while this is quite a lengthy report, 134 pages, it's produced by a whole lot of non-governmental, unelected, unaccountable actors, you know, global players and so on. People who you and I have probably never met, never seen, but they have decided this is how we need to live our lives. And page 30 of this report tells us what SDG 3 should look like. And the very opening of this, for me, is concerning because it says the Vatimata District Health Board study released at the end of March 2019 showed 
that 53% of Maori deaths and 47.3% of Pacific people's deaths were attributed to potentially avoidable causes, such as cancers, heart disease, car crashes, and suicides. And then they go on to say, the study's author stated that the healthcare system needs to recognize and address the role racism continues to play in these disparities. So heart disease, car crashes, suicides, and cancers are now termed in the racist basket. And this is directly coming from the United Nations. How often this year have we heard, you know, about finally some doctors beginning to squawk about the fact that they now need to look at a race-based lens when deciding who to prioritize for surgery? Well, it's frightening, isn't it? it it's... You know, when you when you choose something on race, you you're going down a slippery slope. But I noticed too the wording that they use in here too, Jaspreet, the Ministry of Health um, stated it an NGO forum. So this is a non-governmental organisation that it, probably you're financing um, that sucks all the money, but they're looking for equity of outcomes and that is always a really really frightening um phrase because there's no such thing really as equity of of outcome um and that underpins all of our priorities and there's need for major changes is, is what's said so that equity of outcomes is a is a very thorny little issue and i've um, said this in the past yeah i'm not quite two people. sure what mm-hmm. two people in the same household my brother and i yeah. completely different places in life being afforded the same opportunities, the same set of parents, the same upbringing, physically, uh, I would say financially, career-wise, we are at completely different places. How would you ever decide equity amongst us? Yeah, well, it doesn't, you know, again, it's one of those nice fluffy words that um, that doesn't really exist, you know, the outcome, you can't have equity of outcome mm-hmm. for everybody unless you have communism. And like I said, when everybody's equally miserable and equally dead, Mm. then you've got equity of outcome. But it's when you go on. through, mm. sorry, I was just going to say, going through this report, it touches on nearly every aspect of of health, mm. um, whether it's your mental health, whether it's your physical health. It, it, the government wants to control all of it. And what cracks me up is this is in 2019. So these these goals had already been well put into place before anybody knew anything about them. Because mm. it was only 2019 that Jacinda said she'd put them into into our domestic policy. Mm. So they've been they've been here um, for quite a while. And the repeated theme in this report, the People's Report on SDG.org.nz that New Zealand presents to the United Nations, it says, in summary, we can and we must achieve a fairer society in terms of health outcomes. They've gone on to say how mental health. Maori overrepresented in uh, access to contraception. Maori and Pacifica are, you know, at a disadvantage. Traffic injuries, there is again a problem. Again, they are being looking looked at through a race-based lens. Reproductive health, youth suicides. It's and then there is the LGBTQ lens. There is the Asian lens. How Indians? What are they saying? Indians have a greater, uh, yeah greater chance of getting diabetes and other things. So, I mean, honestly, we are not looking at the system here. We are trying to split people into as many different lenses that are 
possible and some which are completely impossible, but they're still here. And then yeah. instead of fixing the problem, you're fixing the blame. Hey, you white people or hey, you so-and-so, you're to blame. Where does this nonsense end? And, and, and we're saying... Hmm? I was just going to jump in there. Sorry, Jasper. Just to, you know, we we had that wonderful um, Mike King, who worked so hard with his gumboot. Remember the right gumboot drive and and working within Maori mental health because uh, Maori Maori youth suicide is 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 off the scale mm. um, again. And this is a subject that has been spoken about for probably the last twenty years or more, mm. and yet. No advances seem to have been made in any real way or form. And he was somebody who was making a difference and then suddenly he got shut out. Mm. You know, so so you can only you can't make a difference unless it's their way. And yet last year, November 22nd, NZ Herald reports that data shows despite the government's 1.9 billion mental health budget, no improvement in total beds for mental health patients. It began in 2017. With 608 beds in the country. In 2021, we reached a peak of 619 and then went back to 608. Yep. For $1.9 billion. We have NGOs, non-elected global players, state players, using our taxpayer dollars for absolutely nothing to show for it. And the rest of us are kept busy in fighting, deciding who's of which race and who's caused my, uh, you know, my likelihood of my increased likelihood as an Indian uh, ethnicity person of getting more diabetes. No, seriously, it is. It's completely mad. And especially when you look at, you know, we're we're a country of five million people mm. to spend one point nine billion dollars and not go any further and not get further ahead um, is horrific. It is mm. absolutely horrific. I've got a little bit of a I'll, – I'll go and find it. Mm. Um, there's a slide that I, I take these people have. They've put out the goals and then the translations so that the goal is yeah, to ensure healthy lives and um, – promote well-being for all ages. And their translation of this is to mandate vaccination for all children and adults, um, medicate children with behavioural issues, and assign every child a living person and uh, identification, and that removes parental authority. So this mm. is their translation of how these goals actually work. Um, and I think they're pretty onto it. You know, and... Remember through remember through COVID when our mayors I don't know what's happening up north but we had mayors down here in the south travelling around with caravans making sure that people were getting their their vax. Um, mm. We have mayors encouraging people to go and get their flu vaccine um, through these seasons. So this is this is how they push this well being agenda through. We at had local. councils mandating people out of their mm. funded libraries and pools. So this is this mm. is all coming from the UN. They are I mean, you know, we saw that division between vaxxed and unvaxxed. And even though one tries to put it past, time and again, when you see people struggling now, we suddenly I if anyone missed Guy Hatchard with uh, Paul Brennan on breakfast a couple of days ago. Please have a listen again at the number, at the jump in the number of people who are disabled enough 
to not be able to hold down a job now and are out of a workforce. So whatever happened to mental health and well-being? And now there is this whole push for, as this people's report says, racist. Go push for racist policies. And in case someone speaks up, call them a racist, get them to shut up. And then there is other useful minorities that they use. The article says transgender people also feel they're on the bottom of the minority heap when it comes to accessing healthcare. As medication appropriate for transgender people is not subsidized, there's barriers of cost and leading to higher suicides of transgender. I mean, whatever happened to just universal healthcare? Then regardless of whatever you identify with or you don't, it doesn't matter. Why? Have we reached a state yeah. where we have surgeons needing to double check your DNA? In fact, they're not even double checking. You can just identify as anything. If I'm being technically very correct, you are free at this point to deny at times part or even the majority of your ethnicity because, hey, you can choose what you want to identify. And if something gives you a higher priority or a child of yours a higher priority, I don't blame you. This January, I was sitting in Southland ER for 48 hours to get my seven-year-old's broken arm seen. Two full days in ER, going and traveling, a 300-kilometer, I think nearly 400, driven over those two days. If I could identify that time as Maori and got uh, Sarah prioritized, would I have? You bet your bottom dollar I would have. I would have done it. But that's yeah. what's happening here right now. Yeah. yeah. And so this is all directly coming from the United Nations, this whole section in the People's Report on uh, SDG 3 ends with two recommendations. The legislation and policies be co-designed in Aotearoa with Evie and Maori around an honorable treaty relationship. And number two, the current system overseen by Ministry of Children be overhauled and restructured with the true Maori partnership model that ensures Tamaraki remain. Tamariki remain connected with their whānau. It is what does that mean? You know, when you when you read all this language and and, and um, you know what it actually, you know what they say and what they mean are two completely different things, really. Um, it is. I know still in Australia my memory. hasn't worked here; it's been mooted here. But you know, how much do they care for people who? There's going to be the threat of having any government money. Um, taken off you if your children are not vaccinated. Yep. So that's already happening in um, in Queensland. And with the LGBTQ thing, I, I read the funniest thing today. Actually, it's not funny. Um, they're wanting to know why gay or LGBTQ men, um, they want the government to pay for the operations for them to have a uterus placed into them so that they don't feel so left out. But I was no, told, that's Jill, three hundred thousand dollars an operation, and they want taxpayers to fund it. But Jill, I was told it doesn't matter. Biology doesn't matter. It's just what you feel like. So why even go and do that three hundred thousand surgery? Don't don't make things difficult. You know that if you haven't got a uterus, you don't feel like a woman. <laughs> God. Well, please go and have a list, a good read of just these relevant pages, pages 30 to say about page 45 of the Aotearoa People's Report for the UN SDGs. This section ends there 
giving us a case study from the Auckland District Health Board about how they are promoting health and well-being. And they say Auckland District Health Board is one of the largest public healthcare providers in the country, 11,000 staff, 1 million patients annually. And what are they doing? They say they're committed to becoming the most sustainable health board in the country by working towards being carbon neutral by 2050. The organization's core values align with reducing carbon emissions and eliminating social equity that are regarded as precursors to poverty and poor health outcomes. That tells you all that you need to know. This is not about health. No. And uh, it's not about climate change either, but that's what they bring it in under. You know, everything's got to be sustainable and everything works around being carbon zero, net zero carbon, you know, and all the rest of it. So that's why the climate change is actually the linchpin to all of these these goals. The other thing that they're big on in these reports too is what they call sexual health. Um, what I've noticed with the states when they talk about sexual health, they're actually talking planned parenthood um, mm. and and major abortion providers for younger younger people. Mm. Yeah, so. There's very little to do with your mental well-being and how how well you're going to be looked after physically. It is just a state control. It is just a state control. It was never about health. It was never about the environment. It was never about a vaccine. And it was certainly never, ever about being kind. No. No, that word kind, it's sort of a bit of a tough one to take, isn't it? <laughs> It's a very tough one to take. And if you can, please have a look at, uh, there's a YouTube video floating around of how uh, we have had a webinar aligning the United Nations SDGs within the New Zealand healthcare sector. And this was done, conducted by Gary Walker, the project manager for the SDG alignment in the Auckland District Health Board. I'm amazed. That even there is even such a designation, Jill. Yeah. Project manager yep. for STD alignment at the Auckland District Health Board. Yeah. We are pouring money down the drain. None of us is any better for it. And the sooner we wisen up and, you know, see the writing on the wall, the better. And when you look at the Dunedin Hospital situation, Jasper, again, too, it, it doesn't come back down to health. No. You know, it's just a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. So, yeah. So I hope we've given you, and I've given you enough to whet your appetite on uh, how your mental health and well-being is going to fare against this uh, Agenda 2030 goals. Let's make sure it doesn't happen. Thanks so much for joining me, Dil. That's all good. And we'll we'll catch you next time. Absolutely. Have a great day. And you look after yourself because nobody else will. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members.